0: Steinberg.
1: So, as we put together the episode for last week with Colin Bennett, who wrote the book on Edward Ruppelt, UFOs over the White House, flying saucers over the White House, whatever, I must say I was gobsmacked how confusing his <laughs> conversation was. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was uh, kind of tough to wade through at times, but um, you, you just got to admire the man for the amount of work he's done over the years. Um, he's very entertaining. He's, um, he's quite the character, and I really did enjoy the book. I, I felt his insight, personal uh, opinion about Ruppelt's process, uh, I think it was spot on. I think he really brought up some very interesting points. I think his analysis of RuPelt's process and, and the people around him was spot on. And uh, I think it's a real, you know, I think a good addition to, uh, you know, the whole Project Blue Book uh, historical
1: sort of revisionism. I, I, I think it's a very, very good addition to it. He kept calling it Operation Blue Book, of course, but I won't worry about Why? that. The thing is, of course, I don't know if I had as many insights into Rupelt the man as opposed to Rupelt as the executive in charge of Project Blue Book. That would have been nice. But then he never made an effort, I guess, to contact any members of his family or people who knew him.
2: And that was a little uh, puzzling and surprising, actually. Now that you mention it.
1: It's kind of armchair research ad infinitum. I mean, you could have written emails. You could have tried yeah. to do a little Google research and said, okay, let's see now. What was the name of his wife? Can I find that person? Is she still alive? Did he have children? You know, what can you we know,
2: say? I think that would have fleshed out the narrative quite a bit. Um, I think he's really into uh, writing, and he's a very good writer, and some of his turns of phrase were <laughs> quite memorable. Don't ask me uh, to recite one, because I can't remember. Uh, (laughs) Quite memorable, except that you couldn't remember (laughs) one. Well, he's just very entertaining as a writer, and you know, being an aspiring writer myself, I I can really appreciate someone that's got some real writing talent, which he does, obviously. And one thing that we didn't talk about was the Ray Santilli uh, fiasco that uh, I think he was involved in helping Unmask with Phil Mantel, but... Um, I guess we 'll have to have him back for another show and see if we can get some sort of uh <laughs>
1: audio filter that'll clean up the uh the gobsmacking right well, he was coughing a lot through the episode. we kind of clipped that out <laughs> basically he'd been ill, and I gather he was on the mend, and maybe that 's why we weren 't going to make him look <laughs> three to one go ahead we weren't going to <laughs> three two one <laughs> we weren 't going to make him look three to one foolish on the show. So, a lot of that was excised from the final version 3 to 1. And I'm glad you were the one that had to do it. Thank you. I resemble that remark. It's In any case, no, it's interesting though that we have to look at how we got here. If we're looking at the UFO field, what we know about the subject, if we don't understand where we came from, we keep repeating the same mistakes. And that's such an unfortunate thing. You know, so some of our listeners may think, "Yeah, who wants to know about UFO books from the 1950s that's so old it's before I was born well maybe it was but if you don't know what they did why they did it you're just going to repeat their mistakes all over you know, again.
2: rehashing old territory and one thing I've noticed Gene is we've in the past two weeks we have added so many new forum uh, posters and members of the Paracast community and I don't know if you've noticed but they're all in their 20s
1: and this is a very good sign Gene I know we're getting on more radio stations. I don't have the full list. I know very recently we joined a station in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is a pretty large city, pretty large metropolitan area. And I'm happy, that. Sure, I'm happy yeah. that we joined that station yeah. and that we are in Corpus Christi. If you want the Powercast to be on your favorite radio station, a talk station in your city, write us, news at com, news at com. I will take that information I'll send it on to our network people at GCN Network and have them work through it and see if they can't get them on the roster. So we're trying. We're trying to get on as many stations as possible. We cannot do it without your help. We need your help and advice. Speaking of the forums, it seems to me that the discussion that has never ended and won't end <laughs> is still about Crystal Skulls. There's no last word on that. It just goes on. Well, we're going to have to get uh, who I consider to
2: be... Arguably the top expert right now in the field in terms of non-scientist experts, uh, Stephen Mailer, who was Nick Noserino's protege. Uh, Nick, of course, was the longtime well-considered crystal skull researcher who pretty much wrote the book on the subject, uh, for better or for worse. But you're right, gene. it's I'm just amazed it's one of the largest threads that I've seen on the Paracast since I become involved and boy it's uh, and unless we kind of put the kibosh on it, it's going to continue it's It's like Frankenstein
1: it's got a life of its own well, as long as it stays within the range of acceptability, I mean it's kind of drifted out there a little bit, but as long as it remains acceptable, we'll keep it going I mean. Up till now, the longest thread we had was early in the Paracast Forum's history, where we talked about Billy Meyer. And that went on for thousands of posts until we said, this is enough, I can't handle this anymore, let's just stop it. It erupts every so often. Another one was abductions. Okay, lots of discussion on abductions. And you wonder, when all this happens, why does a discussion thread, which is a topic of discussion in a forum, why it suddenly gets out of hand. A couple of simple messages and somebody drops in, says, oh, no, it can't be that. And they give their opinion. And suddenly, 10,000 messages later, they're still talking about it.
2: Well, we, I must say, Gene, it's amazing. Several of the posters on the, on the forum have spent days calling the Smithsonian, making phone calls all over, uh, digging deep into the research material about the crystal skull subject uh, i mean do these people
1: have a day job or do they have a life I- they're independently wealthy i think that's it right there they have all the money in the world they don't need any more money so it's no big well, why deal. can't they send it to us <laughs> well you know we mentioned i guess half seriously that if any of you has the ability to do research conduct research about these subjects and you're willing to contribute the facilities of your laboratory. And we can get samples to investigate. We could send you evidence of cases, photographs, et cetera. We'd welcome that. We did get a letter from somebody, a scientist, yeah, who said he has the facilities. So we're going to follow up on that. We are indeed. Sure. But, you know, if we want to set up a fund for that, that would be nice. I don't know how to go about that yet. Okay. I'm not an accountant. No, we'll figure it out. We'll figure, figure it out. We'll figure it out. Once the checks start coming in, we'll figure it out. There but we'll have to do it, you know, on um, the fair and square and make sure that the money's properly allocated. No nonsense. Like the nonsense we heard about the controversy over at MUFON. I don't know who oh was boy. the good or bad party there, but there were so many complaints there. We don't want to get into that. We're not a UFO investigative organization. We're just a radio show. It's just a talk show. But if we have some people who are willing to contribute towards investigation research, people who have the facilities, write us, news at the theparacast.com, news at the theparacast.com. Now, during the course of the discussion, which I could figure out this part of the discussion, a few times Colin Bennett mentioned author Nick Redfern, who's one of our guest co-hosts, about the fact that he has contributed material towards Nick's new Men in Black book. The book is called... The real men in black. We're not talking about the fake men in black here. The real men in black <laughs> evidence, famous cases and true stories of these mysterious men and their connection to the UFO phenomena. Okay, now he's okay. referring to phenomena as a plural, not a singular. Yeah. It's not a phenomenon, it's a phenomena. We'll have to debate that with Nick. The proper British gentleman, which one is it? Now, understand at the same time, as this is going on, They are making a new Men in Black movie, Men in Black 3, with the original stars, Will Smith and, of course, Tommy Lee Jones. And I guess Rip Torn, who, if he can just keep his gun in his holster and not take (laughs) it out when he's drunk and he's walking into a bank.
2: (laughs) He's a wild guy. And Josh Brolin
1: is playing a young Tommy Lee Jones from his 60s. Josh Brolin? Well, he can play George Bush. I guess he can play a young Tommy Lee Jones yeah fascinating coming up next we have the real men in black is the book nick redfern is the guest i'm gene steinberg the co-host is chris o'brien you're in the Paracast. okay so who is watching your home when you're not there Help protect your home with a security system monitored by ADT. It's the leader in home security. Remember, ADT is the number one monitoring service in the country. It comes with world famous ADT yard signs. The monitoring cost is just one dollar a day. You probably pay more for coffee. This is the safety for your family and your possessions, you can save up to 20% on homeowner's insurance. Just call Protect Your Home, your authorized ADT dealer. Call now and get $850 of equipment and activation free. Call one 778 3127 Call one 778 3127 And here's our fast disclaimer. installation charge, 36-month monitoring agreement at $35 to $39 per month. Call for terms and conditions and license numbers. When making important financial decisions, you should always know the facts. That's why
3: Midas Resources is willing to pay you to read the facts. Midas Resources, a team of hand-picked financial specialists with decades of financial experience who are ready to provide you with state-of-the-art, up-to-date financial services. Midas Resources offers a host of services and stands behind their products. In fact, if you call and order their free Midas Report, Midas Resources will pay you. This detailed report will provide you with financial history on the safest and most most profitable areas to invest in if you read the report midas resources will send you a free walking liberty silver half dollar so what are you waiting for get the facts and call midas resources toll free at 888-292-2709 that's 888-292-2709 and remember if you read the midas report you'll receive a free walking liberty silver half dollar
4: We've heard a lot lately about Zeolite, but what is it and why do you need it? Zeolite is a beautiful, complex, crystalline structure that encapsulates radiation and odors. Zeo King Zeolite naturally eliminates radiation poisoning your body may pick up from x-rays, security scanners, or nuclear fallout. Zeo King flushes environmental toxins absorbed from smoke, cell phones, and chemicals so it detoxifies heavy metals including mercury, lead, and cadmium. Zeo King Zeolite helps boost your immune system, allowing your body to balance itself and cut off food supply to cancer and parasites. Order your Zeo King Zeolite now from zeoking.com for only $39.99 and receive a free month supply with every order. Call 888-402-6779. That's 888-402-6779. Or visit zeoking.com, that's z-e-o-king.com, for natural elimination of radiation poisoning.
6: America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network.
0: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com Get in on all the action at forum.theparacast.com
1: The co-host is Chris O'Brien I'm Gene Steinberg You're in the Paracast Our guest this week is also one of our guest co-hosts He's Nick Redfern And the book is all about the real men in black And before we talk about the real men in black let me introduce you to The real R-E-E-L, Men in Black, from the movies. Now, this is what we hear about Men in Black, of course. The most popular concept is in the movie, not in reality, and we'll have to separate that. So, from the movie, the original Men in Black movie, Will Smith was co-author and rap singer of this chorus. Here come the Men in Black, the Galaxy Defenders. Here come the Men in Black, they won't let you remember... Now, Nick Redfern, how do we separate the Men in Black from the graphic comic book, the movie, to the real Men in Black?
7: Well, you know, I think in in some respects, it's actually a difficult job, purely and simply because, you know, when you have a movie and a a sort of a motif, if if you like, that's so popular and powerful within Hollywood, many people's perceptions, particularly those who've come to the UFO subject post, you know, appearance of the film their sort of views are created and sort of modified by the, you know, the nature of the movie. This, The idea that the Men in Black mystery is solely one revolving around government agents silencing UFO witnesses or researchers, when the reality is that it goes into sort of far stranger realms. And, uh, you know, all I guess we can really do is point out that, you know, the Men in Black movie, the comic book, yes, there is this aspect to even the real life Men in Black stories, but there's equally far stranger aspects to it as well.
1: Specifically here, I mean, originally when we heard about Men in Black, in connection with the Albert K. Bender incident back in the early 1950s, we thought of them as government agents who were just around to frighten people into shutting up about what they might know about UFOs. When did it deviate from that concept, which isn't so difficult to understand?
7: Well, I think in some respects, you know, it's always been there, but it's been sort of under the radar a little bit, and people have just misperceived what the Men in Black mystery is about. I mean, you know, it's good you bring up Albert Bender, because chiefly, he was the one person more than any other, arguably, who sort of gave birth to the whole Men in Black puzzle. Now, Bender was an intriguing and And kind of weird character as well he was steeped in not just ufological research but also the realm of the occult the supernatural the paranormal both in excuse both in fiction and in fact you know he was someone who delved into ouija boards black magic all sorts of things and he actually lived in an offshoot of the attic of his stepfather's home which was sort of um, replete with the requisite creaking floorboards and he painted sort of graphic imagery of monstrous faces on the walls of the attic. He he sort of lived in this sort of unusual environment, doing UFO research, dabbling in the occult. The story was that after he set up this group called the International Flying Saucer Bureau in the early 50s, which actually reached almost like stratospheric heights, Um, What do we mean by
1: stratospheric? How big?
7: Well, I mean, his group, you know, most people set a UFO group up in the little town or the city where they live, and they have monthly meetings where 50 people will turn up. What happened was with, with Bender's group was it actually attracted interest from all around the world, and there were chapters in Britain, in Australia, you name it, you know, in the developed world, there were chapters, and his newsletter literally, you know, went out to hundreds of people And the group became, I guess, like a major force within the entire UFO field for a brief time. And I say a brief time because literally within a year, Bender quickly closed the IFSB down and alluded to having got a visit from three guys in black suits who basically said, you know, if you know what's good for you, you'll walk away from this subject. Now, the reason we know this is because Bender quietly told a couple of friends and colleagues one being an early UFO researcher named Augie Roberts, and also told Gray Barker. Barker and Bender were friends and they shared interest in UFOs and the occult. And Barker, as you know, was a sort of very well sort of rounded writer. He, you know, very, very atmospheric writer. You do have to, as I point out in the book, be careful how to separate fact from fiction and sort of metaphor and parable, etc., in Barker's works, but, His book, his 1956 book, uh, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, told the story of Bender's IFSB and how the clampdown came. Now, if you read the book, a lot of people have assumed that the book says that Bender was shut up by the government. It actually doesn't. It implies that, but it doesn't specifically come out right and say so. And one of the reasons why is because Barker full well knew that the story that Bender was hiding actually didn't really support that notion. What happened was that a few years later, in 1962, Bender published or wrote his own book that Barker published, titled Flying Saucers and the Three Men. And in this book, Bender's MIB are sort of far stranger. They're the sort of definitively weird, pale-faced, glowing-eyed, sometimes men in black, wig-wearing, makeup-wearing characters that seem more ominous and unsettling than the government side of things and he said that he would those entities would literally sort of manifest in the attic and he'd go into almost like an altered state where he would smell like fire and brimstone he'd feel dizzy and nauseous the room would start to spin and suddenly the men in black would appear he said that these were the entities that told him to quit UFO research. So in other words...
1: He was a contactee?
7: Well, yeah, I mean, you could, you, you, could, you could argue he was a contactee, but I think the important thing is that even Bender's story, which kicked off the Men in Black mystery, does point out that, you know, although there is a government angle to this, and ironically, where the Bender story gets confusing is that you know, I used the Freedom of Information Act and found that, I mean, that the FBI had actually opened files on both Bender and Barker Even to the extent where there's one document in the file that I reproduce in the book, which talks about how none other than J. Edgar Hoover ordered one of his agents to get hold of Barker's they knew too much about flying saucers. So, you know, on the one hand, we have Bender talking about being visited by paranormal, almost, men in black, and yet we have the FBI, who at that time wore suits and fedoras or Homburg hats, etc., also taking an interest in Bender. So this is why he gets into such confusing and overlapping areas, I think.
8: But with
1: Bender, can we take him seriously, or did he just write that book, and I gather Barker probably did heavy editing of it, did he write that book just to answer the questions or just to have a little notoriety because of his interest in horror films the Power and Rumble, etc.?
7: Well, I mean, that, that's a good question. It's one, you know, that I also raise in the book. There's, you know, I, I don't shy away from the fact that this entire issue is steeped in, in major controversy. Now, for example, you know, as I said, th- there's no doubt that Bender set up the organization and that it did reach, you know, big heights. And bear in mind, this was also at the time when the CIA's Robertson panel was recommending that, You know, the yearly new UFO groups in the U.S. should be watched carefully, you know, for any issues relative to patriotism or infiltration by the dreaded Ruskies, etc. And so, you know, on the one hand, some people speculated that Bender actually got a visit from government people but then kind of modified this into a fantastic tale of a meeting with a cult men in black, either to gain notoriety or because he was fearful of actually telling the truth and getting into trouble with the FBI. But enough of the story had leaked out to where he had to say something.
1: I'll tell you what, we'll get into more of Albert Bender, the real men in black, and lots more with Nick Redfern. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in The Paracast.
9: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes...
10: Ready to save? Then you're ready for the Super Summer Sale at Herbal Healer Academy. Herbal Healer has been the leader in quality natural supplements for 23 years. Log on to HerbalHealer.com and take advantage of Herbal Healer Academy's incredible savings on 500 parts per million colloidal silver. The best pharmaceutical grade available at all sizes on sale. Super Male Plex with you, Himbe, and Super Femplex for summer toning. Buy glucosamine chondroitin 60 caps. Summer sale priced at only $12. Colon Enhancer 250 caps. Summer sale priced at just $18. And if your brain's a little foggy, we have a great supplement on sale called Memory Power. Log on and hit the postcard specials link for more super summer savings at HerbalHealer.com. As always, new customers get a free catalog with first order. Herbal Healer Academy, healing the world with nature one person at a time.
11: If you drive for a living, you don't get paid to stop or wait in line. Keep your wheels moving with PrePass. Bypass way stations. Fly by port of entry facilities. Stay moving at highway speed while the guy without PrePass waits in line. Save time. Save money. Call 888-401-PASS to try PrePass free.
12: And call 1 686 2237.
3: The American people think they live in a constitutional republic, land of the free, home of the brave. Right. Just try those lines on the judge when you get a ticket or have to deal with a big bad IRS. Instead, use escapeharassment.com. Since 1972, our volunteer group of researchers and educators have successfully taught how to escape tickets by law. And it works. Escape harassment has three different steps to follow, depending on where you are in the ticket process. Learn how to escape tickets, IRS, or court proceedings before you go to court. For free, three-minute pre-recorded information and FAQs, call this toll-free number one 877 Seven nine zero zero nine. That's 877-457-9009. Or go to escapeharassment.com and see our money back guarantee. That's escapeharassment.com. Remember, escape harassment works.
6: Are you tired of searching for Great Talk Radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio
5: Network. This is Kurt Sevin, so the author of UFO Mysteries, and you're listening to the Paracast.
1: The subject is Men in Black, not the kind that Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and all those people portray in the movies, but the ones supposedly real with Nick Redfern. The book is called The Real Men in Black. I'm Gene Steinberg, the co-host is Chris O'Brien, a learned scholar, according to Nick. <laughs> Correct. That's what he is. Oh, well, this show is just getting away from me here. (laughs) It's being taken away, and they're taking me away. Now, okay, let's have more of a devil's advocate theory here about Albert Bender. And that is, do you consider the possibility here that Bender contrived this men in black thing just because he lost interest in UFOs, wanted to get out of it, and decided to go out with a bang, as they were. And then after being contacted, overwhelmed, and otherwise being totally annoyed from people who kept visiting him at his home, writing him, calling him over the years, saying, tell us about the Men in Black, tell us about the Men in Black. And he said, OK, I'll write a book.
7: Well, yeah, I think there's that aspect to it. But equally, I think, and most of the people I interviewed for the book also agreed, that, and people who knew Bender, that he actually did get a visit from someone the nature of who that someone is you know is open to debate for example I interviewed Jerome Clark for the book and Jerry was you know very open to the idea that, that Bender really did get a visit from government agents possibly sort of an outgrowth of this recommendation from the uh, Robertson panel but he also felt that Bender basically wrote his book flying Source and the three men to get the UFO community off his back now other people have speculated and I get into this quite deeply in the book about how Bender's experiences may have been some sort of like internal psychological experience. I talk about the fact that, you know, when the Men in Black would appear, he would talk about, you know, he'd go into a dizzy spell, he'd feel lightheaded as if he was drifting away into another world. The room would be filled with these sudden powerful odors like brimstone. And then, lo and behold, the Men in Black would appear. And then after a while, he would sort of drift back into reality. And as I point out, altered states of the mind, intense migraines all of which Bender experienced, even uh, imaginary smells are all actually symptoms of a number of brain-borne situations, one of which is epilepsy. Um, epilepsy has all these characteristics, migraines, you know, an altered state, and imaginary smells, um, We had a lot of people have reported like a, a brimstone-type smell who have epileptic seizures. Now, I'm not saying he definitely had epilepsy, but when we look at these aspects and characteristics of how... The men in Black would appear and the physical effects it would have on Bender I don't think we can rule out that the idea that he wasn't a hoaxer that he was genuinely reporting something but a lot of it may have been born out of a, a brain psychological condition can, uh, linked with his own subconscious worries about having actually been visited by government agents and it all sort of spilled out into almost like a, a waking dream type scenario that may have had even some sort of external reality to it. Who knows? But I I don't think it's as simple as he just wanted to quit the subject. So he wrote a book and saying, this is why I quit. Now, leave me alone.
1: Now, I remember in my early years that Bender appeared before Jim Mosley's discussion group in New York after the book came out. After that, I heard nothing from Bender. Did he just get out of it? Totally after that?
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he just quit the subject. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I mean, you find often in ufology, people quit it, They come back to it, or if they don't, you know, they'll write their memoirs years later, or they'll still stay in touch with people in the field and say, hey, you know, what's the latest news? That sort of thing. But Bender didn't. You know, when he said he was walking away, he walked away. You know, he he surfaced from time to time again in other areas, uh, but certainly not in the entire, in the UFO subject. I mean, it was a case that he just did not want anything else to do with it at all.
1: You said in other areas, how so?
7: Um, well, one of the things he was actually interested in was the music of Max Steiner. And um, that was something that um, he got involved in quite deeply in and around Los Angeles. And um, you know, people would see him from time to time. You know, there were stories people would try and photograph him or call him up. But, he, you know, he just did not want anything to do with this at all. And uh, what he was actually doing when he was in California, he was involved in preserving the work of, of Max Steiner, who, you know, who's a film composer. And um, essentially, he just did not, you know, he would not speak to anyone who approached him about the UFO subjects. And, uh, and I think, you know, this, to me, does speak certain volumes in the sense that if he just wanted to quit, you know, it would be well, okay, I'll quit, leave me alone. It wasn't, it was almost like a Terror induced reluctance just not to talk about it. He just did not want to go down that path anymore.
1: Okay, so we don't know, of course, what really happened to Bender, but do you think that the government really had people who'd run around and suggest to UFO witnesses or UFO club heads, hey, don't talk about this.
7: Well, yeah. I mean, th- there's no doubt if we, if we look at things from the historical perspective of when Bender kicked things off. You know, as I said, I don't think the fact that Bender was at the height of his work in '52 and '53 that it's coincidence. This was the very same time frame that the Robertson Panel was recommending. Hey, you know, we need to watch these early UFO groups to see if they've been infiltrated, you know, um, directly or indirectly. What their patriotism or not isn't with respect to the United States, watch them closely and report back. You know, the, the fact that this is the very same time frame does lead me to believe that there were government people going out, according to the recommendations of the Robertson panel, watching UFO groups. I mean, we know the FBI visited people like George Van Tassel and George Adamski because they've declassified their files, which talk openly about the visits. It may well be in in some cases those government people who for the early 1950s would have been dressed probably in black suits and fedora type hats might have overstepped the mark and instead of just asking questions about the group, hey, you know, what's, what's all this going on with UFOs? What are you doing? They may have overstepped the mark and made a veiled warning. And some of these stories may have sort of nurtured the men in black mythology. And I do wonder if that is what happened with Bender But then, you know, if he did have some sort of condition of the brain and all these subconscious worries about, you know, being visited from the FBI, which might have been fairly traumatic for him, spilled out into some sort of, you know, obscure but nevertheless significant altered state in which this whole scenario plays out in his mind when he possibly is in an altered state. But it is based on a reality that becomes distorted through his subconscious fears, etc.
1: Okay, so where did the Men in Black... Begin? Was it with Bender, or are there other cases predating Bender that yeah. involve people like this?
7: Well, you know, there are. You know, I, I primarily began with Bender in the book, chiefly because, you know, he was the one person more than anybody else who kicked off the mystery. And then Barker certainly, you know, took it to even bigger levels in three years later in 1956 with his book. But if you look back into certainly UFO law, 47, The sort of the notorious Maury Island case in Tacoma, where allegedly like a fleet of UFOs were seen over the harbour at Maury Island and one supposedly exploded and uh, rained debris down onto the shore and into the waters. That case is sort of replete with men in black aspects, things like telephone interference, bugging of UFO researchers, even somebody dressed in black warning one of the key players in the story not to talk about the event. But when you look at it, you know, this sounds more like a straightforward intel op where military personnel were going out and, you know, watching people talking about the Maury Island case, which may not have had any merit to it, but you know, government was elements of the, the official world were still interested in it.
2: Well but, they did they, you know, they did they sent Air Force officers to collect yeah. physical evidence. Uh, and they were yeah, killed just, in, a, but, in a in a mysterious plane crash.
7: No, you're right. That that's one of the strange things about the Maury Island case. So, again, to me, this sounds more like a straightforward military operation that had a lot of conspiratorial overtones, but I'm not entirely sure it has anything to do with the weirder Men in Black, which is sort of the, the focus of the book. You know, I, the, the thrust of the book isn't so much the government angle, although I do have a chapter or two on that issue, but it's to point out to people that, you know, the the imagery that we have of the men in black, the government's MIBs is actually a, a small aspect of the story and it may not be the most significant aspect either.
2: Well Nick, you also bring up uh in I think insightfully so that all down through history there have been figures associated with unusual occurrences, warning people and oftentimes are dressed in black. I'll tell you uh, what, we'll you- get
1: into these historical men in black soon. In our next segment, we have Nick Redfern. The book is The Real Men in Black. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in The Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online
3: in the air, water, or food and can't find potassium iodide? Go to RestoreYourHealthNow.com and choose Liquid Zeolite. Liquid zeolite is hands down the best product to remove radiation from your body and safely removes toxins, heavy metals, boosts energy levels, and promotes a strong immune system for fatigue, muscle weakness, headaches, memory loss, influenza, joint pain, or toxic radiation poisoning. Use liquid zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Liquid zeolite is so powerful it was used to clean up contamination in Chernobyl. Yet so gentle you won't even know you're taking it. Liquid zeolite comes with a money back guarantee, but is only available at Restore Your Health now.com. Learn how to get free bottles of liquid zeolite at restoreyourhealthnow.com. That's restoreyourhealthnow.com or call 800 880 9976. Call 800 880 9976 today and learn how to get free bottles of liquid zeolite.
13: Never buy home canning jar lids again. No kidding. When you buy Tadler Reusable Canning Lids once, you'll never buy canning lids ever again. Safely store emergency preparedness foods for years. Traditional metal lids are single-use throwaways containing BPA. But Tadler Reusable Canning Lids are guaranteed to last a lifetime when used as designed for home canning. Tadler Lids are made with a USDA and FDA-approved food-grade plastic, safe for direct food contact, and contain no BPA. Tadler Lids are dishwasher safe, usable with standard pressure or water bath canning. Eliminate food spoilage from acid corrosion. Fit standard. Mason jars are indefinitely reusable and are proudly made in the USA. Place orders at reusablecanninglids.com or call 1 877 747 2793. 877 747 2793. Call 877 747 2793. Or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's reusablecanninglids.com for Tadler Reusable Canning Lids, the original since 1976.
4: GCN listeners, why have you been hearing so much about Dermatol, the all-natural all-purpose first aid spray? Because it's the must-have first aid product you need in your preparedness kit. Dermatol is made in America by Americans who know there's a more affordable, natural way to treat cuts, burns, bites, rashes, shingles, spoils, and many other skin problems. Dermatol is gentle enough for diaper rash, powerful enough for bed sores, and harmless to the eyes and mouth. It's great for the whole family, even your family pets. Dermatol is antimicrobial, antifungal, antiviral, viral and not diminished by freezing extreme heat or years in storage dermatol is an absolute must for any first aid or preparedness kit dermatol's soothing rapid restoration of injured skin is so effective it's guaranteed order yours today call 800-217-6677 800-217-6677 that's 800-217-6677 efficient economical effective spray it all with dermatol
6: the GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. You're in
0: the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next.
1: Nick Redfern has a book out called The Real Men in Black, just out about the men in black, not just the physical ones, but maybe somewhat more than physical. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Before we broke, Chris was posing this fascinating question about historical men in black. You want to continue with that question, Chris, before we get the answer?
2: Well, I I think it's pretty simple that... um there have been reports uh, down through history, whether they're credible or not, um, I think at this point is beside, beside the point. But figures dressed in black have figured prominently in some pretty interesting uh, incidences that have been supposedly documented and recorded down through history. You want to address that a little bit, Nick?
7: Yeah, sure. I mean, this is an interesting thing, is that when the more we look back into this mystery, we find it's not just a modern-day one. It's a very old one, but it seems that the what we have today is more of like a modern-day motif of a very ancient puzzle, if you like. Now, to give you a classic example, in 1905, um, there was a wave of UFO encounters in Wales, in the United Kingdom. These were essentially, if you read the original newspaper reports, they sound like typical Ghost lights, you know, like the Marfa lights or something along those lines that were seen late at night in sort of the dark hills and valleys of Wales. And, you know, people at the time weren't talking about UFOs and they thought it was something supernatural or paranormal. One of the newspapers that reported on this quite extensively was called the Barmouth Advertiser. And it talks about how during these particular encounters with these ghost lights in and around the valleys and the hills, this is an exact quote from the newspaper. In the neighborhood dwells an exceptionally intelligent young woman of the peasant stock whose bedroom has been visited three nights in succession by a man dressed in black. This figure has delivered a message to the girl which she is too frightened to relate. Now that sounds like something straight out of Keel Barker. Or bender and it's associated with weird light the person delivers a message which has intimidated the witness into silence and they're dressed in black and they're a man you know it's like you could not get a closer description to the men in black than that except for the fact that it originates in a welsh newspaper in 1905 you know so when we get things like this it demonstrates that whatever the nature of the phenomenon you know it didn't begin in the 50s or the 40s and you know, with FBI personnel or CIA, etc. You know, the CIA and the FBI certainly didn't exist back then, and I'm quite sure if they did, they wouldn't have been skulking around the valleys of Wales at 10 Especially o'clock. Especially without the their
2: night. neuralizers.
11: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean,
2: she she, she remembered uh, the uh, encounter, but didn't want to talk about it. So evidently, uh, they left their neuralizers back at headquarters.
7: Yeah, that's sort of like a big no-no.
1: Got to watch uh, out yeah, for those neuralizers.
7: Yeah, exactly. We
1: get, so get fried brain. Like, you know, neuralizers well, guess, might be uh, like a cell phone. We know that cell phones now can fry your brain.
7: That's true. That's true, they do. That's why, uh, you know, using a, using a cell phone, you know, some people say it's not the best thing, which, uh, I don't know, we all use cell phones. I guess in 50 years, if we've all got brain cancer, we'll know they were right. So,
2: <laughs> Put it on speaker, dude.
7: Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, this is just one example of... You know an old report there are also reports that sound just like the men in black of mysterious characters turning up in sort of the 15 and 1600s um in when people doing research into the realm of alchemy you know these black cloak figures back then, not sort of suit wearing homburg wearing figures but black cloak figures would would turn up and impart secrets about um alchemy and stress to the person the importance of not dabbling recklessly in this sort of field, and then they'd vanish as mysteriously as they'd appeared. You know, so you have to wonder: has it been, around, has the mystery been around as long as we've been around? You know, but it, perhaps its motif changes depending on the cultural settings and the perceptions of the people of the particular time.
1: Chris?
2: Oh, okay. oh, it's up to me.
7: I've rendered everybody into total silence. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, that's a, a really good point, Nick, and, and like many subjects in the paranormal that appear to have a modern sort of uh, face, if you dig deep enough and go back in time, you find tantalizing clues that maybe some of these paranormal mysteries that we're you know thinking as a modern thing actually have more ancient roots. And I think this is uh, an important point that you bring up in the book, and – why don't we uh, continue kind of in our timeline here in the 50s, um, look at some of the other cases that occurred that support some sort of paranormal uh, that appears to be government or government that appears to be paranormal cases that kind of help fuel this, this whole thing as it's burbling in the culture and, and look at some of those uh, earlier cases uh, from the 50s.
7: Well, I mean, even Barker himself, you know, was partly responsible, not just with his book, for sort of nurturing the men in black mystery, but he even claimed to have been visited by an agent of the FBI who wanted to know all about Bender's IFSB, which, you know, could be seen as adding weight to the notion that Bender actually really did get a visit from government people. Now, you know, people have speculated that because Barker... Everybody into, you know, about Barker, you know, said, no, the guy was not a liar when he, you know, he wrote the books that he wrote, but he wasn't above turning, you know, a bright sunny day into the proverbial dark and stormy night. And he would perhaps modify a few things, not from a deceptive perspective, but actually trying to get across real ideas, themes, etc., that he believed and that he felt, you know, changing a few things here and there. If he had the the desired effect was worthwhile so sounds like person, john you know, keel be, yeah so we have to be very careful you know with some of these early accounts from bender and barker but barker you know as i said had this alleged experience with a mayor, with an fbi agent and throughout the 50s you know we get things like this we see reports of people turning up uh, apparently looking like government agents and silencing people. But then in the 60s, you know, which which is still sort of the early years of Men in Black research, we do see a change where it becomes definitively weird. And I think this is partly due, or or majorly due, to the fact that Barker was still on the scene and John Keel came on the scene as well and, you know, began doing research into places like Point Pleasant with the Mothman saga and the many and varied Men in Black um, that, that turned up, in that particular situation i mean i talk about these in the book as well you know the fact that a lot of people because you see the uh, mothman prophecies film you know it tells the story of mothman but the men in black don't appear in it at, at all
12: but yeah, if you, it's
2: it's it's, uh, it's richard Gere is actually kind of the men yeah. in black
7: yeah you know you don't really have any sort of real men in black but if you read keel's book you know it's dominated by men in black encounters and a number of these uh, in the town of Point Pleasant were reported by a local journalist, newspaper journalist on the Point Pleasant, excuse me, she was the Point Pleasant correspondent for a West Virginia paper called The Messenger, a woman named Mary Hayer, And she reported to Keel a number of encounters with the men in black, one who literally sort of turned up late one night, and he had sort of like a, a bowl-type haircut, was actually smaller than five feet in height, and these weird hypnotic eyes. The craziest thing about it of all was that he seemed weirdly obsessed by Hires' ballpoint pen. And when he, she told him, well, he could keep it, he sort of gave out this bone-chilling, cackle-like laugh and charged off out the door into the night. You know, this is just sort of the, the bizarre things that we get in these Men in Black reports. You know, there's they sort of almost thrive on absurdity, if
1: you like. Sounds like a chooksuit to me, Gene. And you know what? Another question I'd ask here, then is we know, of course, that Gray Barker and especially John Keel were probing into these men in black cases, especially cases where the men in black did not seem to be government agents but something altogether yeah. different. Do those cases exist outside of their investigations of them? Do they persist after Keel and Barker left the scene?
7: Well, yeah, they do. I mean, I'll, I'll give you another, a quick example of, of Keel's, involvement if you like which is a really very very strange story but just before i get to the issue of you know whether they existed after they finished their investigations one of the people i interviewed extensively for the book was brad steiger because brad who's still you know a big player on the scene today he was around um you know back in the early to mid 60s when the so the second wave of men in black law if you like was really taking off and he got to know people like keel barker um Jim Mosley, Alan Greenfield, people like that. And um, Steiger told me in one of the interviews that I did with him for the book, and this is reproduced in the book, how there was one thing he wanted to discuss with me or chose to discuss with me, which he was a bit reticent to do so, and he'd never spoken about before. But he told me how when he, be- he came to know John Keel, and you know, they would have dinner together and, and meet up, etc. Uh, He told him Keel told Steiger. On one occasion, the Men in Black actually visited Keel at his own apartment. Um, And according to the story told to Steiger by Keel, these Men in Black literally manifested through the front door of his apartment. Um, And Steiger said, when he was sat opposite him hearing this story, he did not get the opinion that you know Keel was pulling his leg, yanking his chain, or whatever. That he was deadly serious that you know these men in black had essentially scared the hell out of him by just literally kind of materializing through the door.
1: We'll have more of these incredible counters of the men in black with Nicholas Redfern, author of the Real Men in Black. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in The (laughs) Paracast.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: I want to remind you that we're still working on these ideas for a premium service, the Paracast Pro. We welcome your suggestions, special interviews, special videos, lots more stuff in the wings. Let us know what you think about all of this. Write us, news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. We have Nick Redfern. He's author of a book called The Real Men in Black, subtitled Evidence, Famous Cases and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to UFO Phenomena. He's not talking about the lyrics of Will Smith's Men in Black song from the movie. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Before we broke... You were telling us a story, and the story is that these men in black, in a sense, materialized in his apartment in New York, right? Where he said, for example, that he was talking to Brad Steiger about this, and he said that the three men in black materialized in his New York apartment. Would you go on?
7: Yeah, sure. Well, this is sort of one of the strangest stories and, and surprising stories. You know, I never anticipated getting anything like this. Um, when I interviewed Brad Steiger, because he was sort of a key player, well, he still is a key player in the phenomena today, but certainly, you know, he was one of the earliest players in the, in the second wave of men in black encounters in the 1960s and got to know people like Jim Moseley, John Keel, Alan Greenfield, all the early people in MIB research. And Brad told me there was a story that was given to him by Keel that he felt a little bit reticent about telling, but he said because Keel had told him personally, um, you know, he he felt now was the time to relate it. And he said that how on one occasion Keeler told him that, that Keel himself had had an encounter with the men in black. We already covered
1: but that in the next- previous segment, Nick. I don't want to repeat it. No. I just want to go to the point where they appear in his apartment. Go ahead.
7: Oh, okay. Well the men in black appear in Keel's apartment and essentially you know, there's there's a threat made. You know, it's sort of an intimidating thing about, you know, this isn't an area to be digging into or delving into. And the the story was that, you know, it really did spook um, Keel. You know, it certainly didn't make him quit his research. But the fact that these MIV appeared, you know, made the usual veiled threat and then kind of ethereally vanished as weirdly as they'd first appeared made him realize and made Steiger realize as well that this wasn't just, you know, some sort of government psychological operation, that there was a far weirder thing going on.
1: And you're sure certain here that Keel, at least as far as Steiger was concerned, was not pulling his leg.
7: Steiger told me that he was absolutely convinced that Keel, from his mannerisms and the way he related the story, was telling him an, an absolute truth, you know, that, that Keel fully believed uh, this experience occurred and, and related it as it occurred to Brad.
1: Chris.
2: Well, that kind of would explain some of Keel's post, uh you know, Mothman mm-hmm. prophecy work as being, okay. you know, he kind of ratcheted up the paranoia, I think in the man, he seemed to get, uh a little twitchy after that. Uh, do you see any other, uh, it, I mean, you've researched this subject so extensively, um, Do we have any other clues that Keel may have had other encounters with men in black or was warned off particular um, investigations? Of course, you know, Mothman is filled with these weird phone calls arriving at a motel uh, just by chance. He wanted to, you know, stop uh, for the night and he'd arrive at the hotel and there'd be a message waiting for him and he picked the motel at random. This is this is like the area I think where we get into more of a paranormal version of the Men in, Men in Black that that almost seem to be time based uh, in nature and I'm I'm sure we're going to cover the whole you know time traveler potential uh, in this uh, show but do we have any other indications that Keel was visited subsequently to uh, to the to the Mothman uh, investigation.
7: Well, we don't have hard evidence that he was visited, but, I mean, you do make a good point when you point out that I think one of the things Keel realized was that the more he delved into the phenomenon, the more the phenomenon began to get its grips into him. And, you know, you rightly point out, and as I note in the book, you know, he would go on investigations and have these weird events, weird synchronicities happen, pulling up a hotel and then finding somebody calls him in a weird mechanical voice on the phone when no one knows he's there. You know, there was mail interference, extensive telephone interference. And I think reading Keel's work, you begin to realise that he 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 was clear on one thing, that when you look into this phenomenon somehow it realizes you're looking and it turns the tables. And I think Keel alludes to this throughout his work and, you know, purely and simply because it happened to him. And I think because of this largely unknown story told by Brad Steiger, then I think this has to have had some sort of bearing upon Keel's conclusions. You know, if if he wasn't pulling anybody's leg or whatever, or wasn't hallucinating and three shadowy figures really did materialise in his room, then to me that would fully explain why his writings from then on were went down the pathway that sort of extended far away from, you know, nuts and bolts UFOs or Mothman is just a flesh and blood animal or Bigfoot's a flesh and blood animal. You know, his entire writing from then on pretty much was down the pathway that, no, this is definitively paranormal regardless of how we define what the paranormal is or isn't.
1: It also sounds like it became definitively paranoid Mm. because of fear that something bad was going to happen.
7: Well, this is actually something, this is a trend or a characteristic that you find throughout the entirety of MIB law and visitation. I don't think there's hardly anybody I interviewed for the book, in terms of eyewitnesses at least, who had had a Man in Black encounter, who didn't, for a while afterwards at least, to a degree, become paranoid. Now, that's not, you know, that's not a... Bismarck in their character. It was just the fact that the experience so traumatized them that for a while, some of them, you know, they would be looking through the blinds. And if a black car pulled up outside or went slowly by in the street, you know, it would induce a panic attack or the heart would just race. Um, other people, you know, it didn't just sort of affect them for a month or two. You know, it had major long standing effects to where they almost plunged into kind of like a post traumatic stress disorder I mean Albert Bender you know when his experiences when the Men in Black began you know he he was sort of bright eyed and ready to hit the UFO research field so to speak over time you know he would be pummeled by migraines ill health he developed um, a totally illogical fear of developing cancer when he was only a a very young man Um, you know he would see shadowy entities even in the cinema when he would go on, on a Saturday night you know he was he claimed to have seen sort of men in black type characters sitting in the corner in the shadows of the old theatre when he'd be there watching films. Um, so you know we see this developing massively in people who've had MIB visits. You know the idea that it, it overwhelms them, the experience overwhelms them, and, and to an extent, you know it, it takes over their life. And Bender also developed. Um, there's you can from his own work we can guarantee we can sort of. Uh, Realize this he developed OCD obsessive-compulsive disorder. He actually points out in his book how in his office Everything has its own place and he could immediately tell if anything had been moved even slightly And he would even get really irritated If friends visited and picked something up and didn't put it up back in its exact place, you know and That's like a, a classic OCD yeah,
10: thing,
11: which, is
7: often, which is often provoked when somebody has a traumatic event and controlling their environment helps them to ease that
1: trauma. Well, this is an interesting case here, then. And can we look into a whole case history of people with OCD that something frightening precipitated those particular reactions or behavior?
7: Well, I mean, I wouldn't try to, you know, claim to be a psychologist, psychologist or psychiatrist or anything like that. But I think, you know, a lot of long-standing psychological conditions do have a basis in, you know, one underlying incident or event. Um, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. It has nothing to do with ufology, but it does have a bearing on, you know, the question you brought up. I'll tell you what, I'll ask you to
1: recite that case in our next segment. Okay. We have Nick Redfern. The book is called The Real Men in Black. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in... The (laughs) Paracast.
14: Have you been sitting on a few great domain name ideas but haven't locked them in for yourself? Good. Now you can buy them through the number one domain name registrar, Namecheap.com, as voted by the top tech blog Lifehacker. Just like the name says, you can buy domains cheap, as low as $2.99, and every new domain comes with WhoisGuard, our special privacy service, free for the first year. Now that you know, it's time to grab those domain names before someone else does. Namecheap.com. Go now. Namecheap.com.
1: Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown keep up with the latest on angels and miracles psychic phenomena ghosts ufos life after death and much much more to receive your free issue of fate magazine call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 what are you waiting for your fate awaits
8: As many people know, ever since President Nixon took us off the gold standard, the U.S. dollar has been devaluating. What people don't know, however, is how this directly affects your personal finances. Is there a way to protect your portfolios from losing value? The answer to all of this is gold and silver. They both have maintained their purchasing power for 6,000 years. If you had $100,000 in cash and $100,000 in gold and silver back in 1913 and kept them until now, your cash would have the buying power of only $4,800, but your gold and silver would have the buying power of three million dollars the answer to protecting your assets is simple call john ballman today at 1-800-686-2237 extension 169 get all your questions answered before your money is worth a zero call 1-800-686-2237 extension 169 take action today while we still accept paper dollars for gold that's 1-800-686-2237 extension 169
15: We all need to prepare ourselves. You might have the food, water, gold, and silver, but ask yourself, are you truly prepared? That's why you need to visit MainMilitary.com. MainMilitary.com carries everything you need. Gas masks, wool blankets, fire starter kits, high-capacity magazines, chemical suits, military surplus items, and much more. Do you own a firearm? MainMilitary.com has a large selection of pistols and rifles suited for your needs. Are your local stores sold out of ammunition? Call or visit them today for prices on hard-to-find ammo and bulk ammo orders. You don't need to worry about having a military surplus store in your area because MainMilitary.com is the only store you'll ever need, all from the comfort of your computer. Visit them online today at MainMilitary.com. That's Maine, like the state, Military.com. Or call them at 1-877-608-0179. That's 1-877-608-0179. If you drive for
11: a living, you don't get paid to stop or wait in line. Keep your wheels moving with PrePass. Bypass way stations, fly-by port of entry facilities, stay moving at highway speed, while the guy without PrePass waits in line. Save time, save money. Call 888-401-PASS to try PrePass free.
12: Future and call one 686 2237
6: America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network.
0: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you want to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out on iTunes.
1: I will not tell you where that laughter came from. (laughs) Dang, Nick.
2: You're scaring me. You're raining on my Paracast parade here. Nick Redfern is joining
1: us, and when Nick is here, it's never real, or it's real (laughs) beyond reason, depending on your point of view. The book is The Real Men in Black. Speaking of real, I'm Gene Steinberg, the co-host, Chris O'Brien, and you're about to talk about something that precipitated an OCD behavioral pattern?
7: Yeah, I I mean, again, it's nothing to do with UFOs but it does serve as a parallel as to how traumatic events can provoke unusual behavior and, you know, and we can apply this to the men in black. The example is when I was at school, I went to school with a girl who developed anorexia and got extremely, extremely ill with it and basically got like a warning from the doctor, you know, that if you continue on this pathway, you'll just, your heart muscles will be so affected and degenerated, you know, you'll have a heart attack at 25 or whatever and die she actually got over the anorexia but for I can't remember the exact amount of time but I I do recall it was like six or seven years literally she had like a phobia of exercising or you know anything like this where it might put a strain on a heart and she had, like, three or four heart checkups at the hospital just to make sure that there was nothing wrong with her heart. And the doctors were like, well, no, you're one of the lucky ones. It's fine. Six months later, she had to go back and have another one just to make sure and another one just to make sure. And it was kind of a phobia that she would damaged her heart. And it came to dominate. She wouldn't go dancing, worried about walking, running. Had to keep having it checked. And I think, you know, this shows how a traumatic event can actually mold a person's life. And I think that is what happened with Bender. You know, it was so traumatic, whatever it was that it had an effect on his entire outlook with respect to UFOs, his subconscious, which may have had a bearing on how these entities manifested, maybe. And we find that in other witnesses, you know, as I said, the twitching the curtains, worrying that there's a black car outside, you know, it's all sort of symptomatic of, of a similar psychological issue, issue that has like a, an initial starting point.
2: Nick. One of the things that we do here at the Paracast, as you well know, is introduce a thread on the forums that allows our forum posters to pose some questions. And before we get too far down the pike here in the show, I'd like to – introduce a few questions that we've had uh posted from the forum so you know you mentioned uh this is from oceans lost who is a uh, a fairly new member of the Paracast forum and um i want to change tact a little bit here and go back into the history of this and and especially in in the british isles my question is nick have there been any reports in england at all being english as well i haven't heard of any and if there are is, do the sightings happen in the country or city more? In other words, uh, is it a rural or is it an urban thing? You did mention the Wales reports from 1905. Are there any other outside of the U.S. cases, let's say, uh, just to kind of cast a a broad net here, where we have fairly well-documented reports or people going on the record saying that men in black have visited them outside of the U.S.?
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a number of significant cases. You know, you can find cases from Australia. I talk about in the book Australia, Mexico, Puerto Rico, the U.S., Britain. I mean, to give you an example from Britain, you know, originally where I'm from, so, you know, I know of a number of these cases. What's interesting is that in the U.S., the men in black, when they appear, they often turn up in black cars, which seem very out of date for the period. You know, they'll turn up in what look like brand-new 1960s Chevys or something like that. In England, they turn up in what looked like 1960s-era Jaguars. So, you know, you, we have this angle as well, which is sort of a parallel, the behavior of the men in black, the style, the way they turn up. There's one very interesting case that I looked into, um, where, which actually does push at least some of the men in black stuff down the government angle. And this is a really interesting case. It involves a, a woman named Anne Lehman, who I interviewed a few years ago. And she told me how... In, the, in 1962, she was living actually in a countryside area, a very rural area, and she'd seen this um, strange light going across the sky. Actually, said it came back on several nights, uh, but she said it wasn't a star. You know, it was moving at speed, but it would be flying low over the old hills at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And she took a step to contact her local Air Force base and said, you know, I've seen this strange thing, what is it? She said that a couple of nights later, literally at night, somebody turned up at the front door, and she said it was a guy in a black suit, black hat, and there was a black car outside, and she invited him in, and he listened carefully as he, she told this story, and the upshot was, he said, well, it probably would be a good idea if you didn't talk to your friends about this, and he asked if he could take some pencil drawings that she'd made of the object and its movements, and she said, sure, you know, thought it was gonna be for the, part of the investigation, and he vanished as mysteriously as it appeared, She never got the drawings back and, you know, confiscation of materials is often a classic aspect of Men in Black stories. Now, this would be just another Men in Black story from this woman, Anne Lehman, were it not for the fact that a few years ago, when the British government was declassifying its various UFO files, it declassified a whole uh, swathe of files from the early 1960s. one of the files actually dealt with Anne Lehman's experience. And there's a report in the file written by the man who visited her. And he's identified as a Sergeant J.W. Scott, who was attached to the British Royal Air Force's Provost and Security Services. The Provost and Security Services are like the British equivalent of the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. But the PNSS, one of their official mandates is to do research, undertake psychological warfare operations, counterintelligence operations, the sort of very type of people you would expect to go out on these missions. The fact that this guy appeared in a black car dressed as a man in black, not in military uniform, does make me think that this is an example of where government personnel may actually have almost sort of camouflaged themselves as the weirder men in black to cover their tracks. And they would have covered their tracks had this file not quietly surfaced at the London National Archives a few years ago, fully confirming everything that Anne said about getting the visit and uh, materials being taken from her and not returned.
2: I have a question here from one of our moderators at the uh, forum.theparacast.com, Ron Collins, and he brings up a very interesting question, which um, I think is quite insightful. I often hear that they wear nondescript clothing, thus the MIB moniker. But have they ever been seen to carry equipment, wear watches, talk on phones, or utilize technology in any way?
7: And that, that's actually a very good point for the most part. They don't. You know, you would imagine if these were government people, particularly in today's technology, and we get reports up to the present day, you know, they would be turning up with tape recorders. Even in the 70s, you know, sort of the early chunky, bigger tape recorders, you know, they didn't have anything like that. It was almost just a case of turning up, asking a lot of weird questions, but not chronicling anything either by audio equipment or, you know, writing it down quickly in shorthand or whatever. It's just a case of almost sitting there listening. Then thank you very much, and leaving. It's almost as if, you know, the, the interview is actually like a stage for something else. It's like the, the reason for the visit. As I, you know, I, I speculate in the book when we get into the issue of things like tulpas and stuff like that. Maybe <laughs> the purpose of the
1: visit We're vampires, inviting them in. Yeah. Okay, yes, we'll get into the vampire in. realm, like True Blood. <laughs> Jeez, Surely. Nick Redfern's the guest. The book is The Real Men in Black. Are they vampires? Uh, your co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Pericast.
10: Oh.
9: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack, of the Rockoids. Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a simple chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, attack, attack of the Rockoids, Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition.
16: Are you still a traditional smoker? Now experience a new lifestyle and try vaping with e-cigarettes by Le Cig. day warranty and satisfaction guarantee so are you ready for a new vaping lifestyle then call 870-518-4307 that's 870-518-4307 or visit lecig.com spelled l-e-c-i-g.com Lasig e-cigarettes for today's modern smoker
14: is your church, school, or organization desperately looking for new fundraising ideas? Tired of the same old candles or candy taking orders, inventory, and low profits? Well, here's great news 10x Fundraising guarantees 10 times traditional profits with zero hassle. For an amazing free bonus, free shipping, and an extra 10% off, enter GCN when you go to 10 fundraising.com That's the number 10, the letter X, fundraising.com. Or call 800 480 8797. Visit 10x Fundraising for 10 times a profit today.
11: The
3: food storage industry leader has done it again. Introducing FDG Clubs and Survival Bucks from the Freeze-Dry Guy. For over 39 years, the Freeze-Dry Guy has served various government agencies and the private sector with the finest in storable foods and emergency rations. If you've wanted to build emergency food supplies but couldn't afford it, now you can. Go to freezedryguy.com, click on Products, and look for the Freeze-Dry Guy Clubs to pay as you go. Now you can build food storage without going into debt. Choose from a payment range of $95 to $450 per month. Our clubs work with everyone's budget. Plus, when you join Freeze Dry Guy Clubs, you'll get additional rewards. For example, this month, get 10% back in survival bucks on all purchases in the Freeze Dry Guy product line, plus free shipping within the lower 48 states on any order amount. Hurry, go to freezedryguy.com or call 866-404-3663. That's freezedryguy.com or call 866-404-3663. The Freeze Dry Guy, the best you can buy.
6: Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast.
1: We're going to record Nick's Laughter. Devilish laughter there. Nick Redfern is the author. Co-host is Chris O'Brien, I'm Gene Steinberg, you're in the Powercast. The Real Men in Black is the book, we're answering your questions, and you raised this question, okay, the men in black, we invite them into their homes, manifestations of some kind of evil force? Yeah, that has to be invited in.
7: Yeah, this gets into sort of really controversial areas, but the way I look at it, you know, controversy, so what? You know, there's no point playing it safe when the facts suggest we shouldn't play it safe, you know, and the Men in Black mystery does dictate by the very way it acts that we go down some weird pathways, and one of these is that sort of relevance of the tolpa, the phenomenon of the tolpa. This is a, an area that deeply interests me. Essentially, tolpas are what you might call in simple terms constructed life forms, constructed or born out of the human mind. You know, the idea that intense focus on one particular issue or imagery in the human mind can almost or literally externalize it you know kind of we give birth to like a mind monster or something like that that can have some sort of semblance outside of the mind like a quasi reality in the real world and that it sustains itself via feeding on high emotional states you know we feed on food water whatever they feed on bleeding dry human emotion and it is a fact that Many MIB witnesses have said that, you know, when they invite these weird-looking characters into their home, afterwards they feel totally drained of energy. You know, like zapped, just need to sleep. That was one of the facets of Albert Bender's story. You know, he would just be wiped out during and after the experience. And is this course, the
1: beginning you know, or a source of the vampire legends in our society?
7: Well, yeah. I mean, this is something I speculate in the book because if you look at vampire folklore, one of the traditions or one of the beliefs was that before the vampire can come in your home it has to be invited that's something we find with the men in black reports you know they actually don't you know turn up and force their way into your house as people might assume if they're sort of there to threaten you they just kind of patiently almost enigmatically stand on the doorstep waiting to be invited in and then when they are invited in You know, it seems they start to ask
17: questions
7: which are threatening and intimidating and actually often get the witness into a deep state of fear. But what's weird is that sometimes the cases or the, the encounter the person had, there's nothing special about it. Sometimes they are, but there have even been people who have been visited by the MIB whose UFO encounter was just a weird light flashing across the sky who they might have happened to tell a few people about. Nothing sinister or spectacular
2: about it. Nick, there's even cases where people literally are finishing up a sighting. They go inside yeah. their house, and there's a Men in Black there. So, I mean, you have, you have both uh, scenarios going on. And let's not forget the Bender and Kiel uh, claims that these Men in Black manifested within their, their personal space in their house without being invited. So we have both, yeah. both sides of the equation going on.
7: Yeah, we definitely do. And I think, you know, it's important to note that fear, the inducement of fear or the, you know, provoking fear seems to be a central point of the encounter. Now, some people have naturally assumed that the fear angle is just because the person's worried they've been visited by the government and they're going to get into big trouble. But it seems that investigating the encounter and wanting the witness to stay silent is almost like a ruse It's almost as if they provoke the fear, because that's the intent of the visit, is to put the person in a state of fear. Then, you know, we could argue, well, is that then evidence that some of these things could be tulpas, the idea that they feed on that fear? Now, it is a fact also that if you look at the stories of these MIB, if they are tulpas, they do fit the pattern. They don't seem like flesh and blood creatures. They seem to be very... Uh, ill-informed of our customs and and ways of life, etc. They get confused, they run out of Temporary
2: life forms.
7: Temporary life forms, yeah, almost as if you know, it's kind of like um, a computer program. You know, you run the program and then when the program's finished, it shuts down. That's what they seem to be like. You know, that they're sent out to perform one particular task. They have a rudimentary understanding of what they're doing and who they are, but they 're all so temporary, and, that, and they, have you
2: know, have no the they have no social no, they graces, they <laughs> have no social graces I think Jacques Valet. Like uh, mm-hmm. you, you didn 't mention the uh, the happy camp case uh, if memory serves me correct here, but Jacques valet, I think, in confrontations, mentioned uh, men in black that. Attempted uh, to eat Jello with a fork, like they'd never seen Jello before. I, I seem to remember that. I, I'm not sure if my attribution is correct, but you
1: mean you but, don't eat it with a fork? Excuse me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, what I'm bringing up here, Gene and Nick, is is the the absurdity of some of these encounters. Uh, they they tend to be dressed wrong for the weather. Um, mm-hmm. They tend to really not seem to have a total grip on their place in reality, uh, which is what Nick is describing here. What what about that uh, is a clue for us here, Nick, when we're looking at this
7: subject? Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I think the clue is that the for me, I, I've come to the realization. I, I really do believe this that the threat, actually, the threat to the witness is actually a ruse, and that the threat is to provoke. A high emotional state, and I really do believe that some of these things are tolpa like You know, whether they're literally tolpas or there's some sort of phenomena we don't fully understand, but they do. Well, why don't, why don't you
2: define tulpa? It's it's a Tibetan term. Uh, number one, uh, for yeah. some of our new listeners, I mean, the whole concept of a tulpa is not well known in the Western world. Why don't you give us a a quick thumbnail, uh, Cliff Notes version of that?
7: Well, basically, you you quite rightly point out, you know, it's sort of a Tibetan term. A tulpa. You you imagine, you know, let's say, for example, you focus on an image in your mind of, let's say, a a huge wolf with glowing red eyes, and you focus on that image for days and weeks, and you sort of nurture it, and, you know, you you construct the image of it, how its fur looks, how it feels, etc., etc., and you focus on projecting this image externally out of your mind, and then... Two weeks later, the local newspaper reports on somebody seen in the nearby woods, a huge wolf with glowing red eyes. You know, it's the idea that you've created something out of your imagination through deep, intense uh, motivation, if you like, and then you've externalized it. And more importantly, when the Tolpa exists or is released, if you like, or unleashed into the real world, it has some semblance of independent reality. But... It can be reabsorbed by the creator or if it gains enough strength itself, it can have a, a stronger and deeper grip on reality. And to do so, it sort of bleeds and feeds upon human emotion or, and high states of emotion particularly. So in other words, it may be that these entities, all these weird entities that we never catch, whether it's Bigfoot, Men in Black, whatever, the reason they're seen isn't accidental. They, they need to be seen so they can feed. You know, it's like maybe Bigfoot doesn't exist until it needs to feed again, and then it it, it ensures that somebody sees it. That person gets into a huge state of excitement or fear. It bleeds the witness dry, and then it vanishes, just leaving a few weird footprints that seem to suggest a physical reality, but that we never, ever catch them. You know, it could be the same with the men in black. The reason we never find them is because they only turn up when they need to feed and then you know they're back in their ethereal reality whatever it may be
2: well you brought up a really good um, alleged uh, example of this in your book which which i also brought up in my book uh, stocking the tricksters and that was the uh, journey of alexander david neil to uh, tibet yeah. and in her training and how to actually manifest a tulpa in in her claim that she actually was able to do this why don't you describe the, the, the process uh, that she had to undergo to get rid of this tulpa, which I find very fascinating because she uh, created something that she didn't really have the ability to deal with, uh, according to
1: her. We'll get into that in our yeah, next segment, which is how to get rid of an invading MIB or mysterious creature, frightening being, whatever. I'm glad they don't happen. A tulpa. A tulpa. Yes. I'm glad it doesn't happen to me. Really glad. I'm not going to invite this. I'm your total, Gene. Oh? (laughs) Nick Redfern is the guest. The book is The Real Men in Black. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in. The Baracast? See if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code Night Owl. Use the coupon code Night Owl to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com.
17: The largest part of gaining radiant health is detoxification. You can drink ionized water, cleanse your intestines, eat a perfect diet, and even take lots of quality supplements and in many instances only make minimal progress. What is the key to detoxifying your body of mercury, heavy metals, chemicals, and drugs? It is glutathione. Glutathione is the master antioxidant used to detoxify your entire body. It stops free radicals, keeps cells young, and reduces inflammation. One World Way protein powder may be able to raise your glutathione production by 64% or more. One World Whey is more effective than any other whey protein powder on the market because it is unheated and from grass-fed cows. All other, quote, cold-processed whey protein powders have been heated and damaged by 15% or more. One World Whey comes in three delicious flavors. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit OneWorldWhey.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com.
13: Never buy home canning jar lids again. No kidding. When you buy Tadler Reusable Canning Lids once, you'll never buy canning lids ever again. Safely store emergency preparedness foods for years. Traditional metal lids are single-use throwaways containing BPA. But Tadler Reusable Canning Lids are guaranteed to last a lifetime when used as designed for home canning. Tadler Lids are made with a USDA and FDA-approved food-grade plastic, safe for direct food contact, and contain no BPA. Tadler Lids are dishwasher-safe, usable with standard pressure or water bath canning. Eliminate food spoilage from acid corrosion. Fit standard Mason jars are indefinitely reusable and are proudly made in the USA. Place orders at reusablecanninglids.com or call 1 877 747 2793. 877 747 2793. Call 877 747 2793. Or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's reusablecanninglids.com for Tadler Reusable Canning Lids, the original since 1976.
3: The
6: GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here.
11: This is Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and I'm here to say a good word or two about the Paracast, which I believe is the gold standard of paranormal radio. Listen to it if you can.
1: for a second there, I thought Nick Redfern was going to give us the famous laugh from The Shadow. Remember? Who knows what evil lurks? In the heart of men, The Shadow knows. Oh, well. Actually, I think that Alec Baldwin did a really good shadow laugh in that movie, which was otherwise a failure. We're talking about a reality here, the real men in black. By Nick Redfern, the co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. We were exploring a question from Chris, and you were about to deliver your answer, Nick, when I rudely interrupted you. Sorry about that.
7: That's all right. I'll just send the men in black around.
1: I think you already have.
7: (laughs) Well, yeah, we're talking about Alexandra David Neal. She was born in 1868, and she was actually the first woman ever to be granted the title of a llama. In Tibet, and she actually lived for a hundred years, so I guess, you know, digging into tulpas wasn't too bad for her in the long term. She, was traveled, she traveled wildly all across the Himalayas, and in 1932, she wrote a book called Magic and Mystery in Tibet. This sort of really opens us up to some of the work that Alexandra David Neal got involved in, and she became acquainted with the, the phenomena of the tulpa, purely from, you know, hanging out in the Himalayas in Tibet and understanding the nature of what it was to create one of these things. So she had a go at doing it. And what she said she actually did was to try to create, or she visualized in her mind, the image of like a friendly-looking, overweight monk, not unlike the sort of the Friar Tuck character in the Robin Hood films, uh, you know, as Hollywood portrays Friar Tuck. And she said that it was a a lengthy, time-consuming, and actually draining process to try and, create this image in her mind uh, with a view to externalizing it Uh, but she said eventually she would see what looked like this sort of jolly fat monk uh, and you know peripheral vision you know she would look look up or whatever from reading and there'd be this shadow in the corner of her eye and then it would vanish in a second but over time it would hang around for five seconds then ten and it would become more substantial over time as if it was gaining strength and, and gaining reality what she said then happened was it became more ominous that this sort of its jolly character became sly and malevolent its overweight form became sort of lean and muscular and powerful and she felt that it was escaping from the confines of her mind and getting out of her control and actually becoming malevolent and resentful of her possibly due to the fact that she created it and the creator does have the ability, if they know how to, to reabsorb the tulpa. And, of course, the tulpa, people who accept this sort of phenomena, the last thing it wants is to be reabsorbed. And she said she had, like, a tremendous battle to actually succeed in reabsorbing it. It was sort of, as she said it in her own words, it had become tenacious for life and didn't want to give it up. You know, if some of these things do become tenacious for life and they don't give it up, and then they start, you know, existing in our world out of our control. That may well explain why people have these weird experiences of fear-inducing entities turning up, exhausting the person, and bleeding them dry, and then saying, thank you very much, and vanishing as mysterious as they came. It may be... The equivalent of us going out to a restaurant, you know, that sounds crazy, but it may be that equivalent of, you know, an emergency sugar fix for a diabetic when, you know, energy runs low and it's time to feed again.
2: (laughs) We have another question here from one of our uh, longtime forum posters, uh, Mike, who is considered a paranormal master on the forum. Nick, I really enjoyed your recent stint on Dreamland and wonder if you would care to further elaborate on what you think of what we call death and how that may or may not have something to do with the phenomenon. I, I get this this feeling here. You know, you're talking about you know, the, the color black and, and people being in a place of fear. Do you think death has something to do with this? Are there any cases where we have men in black showing up as portents for uh, disasters or death? Obviously, the Mothman prophecies and the collapse of the Silver Bridge uh, would yeah. be you know, on Christmas Eve, uh, I think, what, 66 would be a classic uh, illustration of this. Do we have any other sort of portent-type uh-huh. men in black encounters?
7: Well, you know, I mean, that, that, that's difficult to say. I mean, there are reports, you know, where the men in black certainly offer threats of death. But, you know, in terms of actually being like a precursor to it, I, I actually do think the best example we'd have is the Silver Bridge um, in conjunction with the Mothman stories about... The Mothman and the Men in Black were running around Point Pleasant from sort of 65 to 67. And at the height of all this activity, you have the collapse of the bridge, the silver bridge in the town, and the deaths of dozens of people. Now, you know, to what extent this means the Men in Black have some sort of tie-in with death or the afterlife or whatever, you know, it's difficult to say. Uh, What I would say is that one of the people I interviewed for the book extensively was a man named Ray Beauches, Who's both an Anglican priest and a former on state director for the state of Nebraska, and um, a major source Ray, for
2: your book, uh, Final Events. Yeah. I, I, I want yes, exactly.
7: to add. I him for that one as well. Yeah, and Ray told me how he knew Barker and he actually met Bender, um, and he's dug deeply into the Men in Black mystery. And he believes, you know, based around his sort of Christian belief systems, that the Men in Black, some of them, are sort of paranormal occult or possibly even demonic entities um, that sort of masquerade as as the MIB as a means to get their grips into, I guess, susceptible people like Bender and, you know, further open the human races, um, you know, to a negative occult world, if you like, to sort of lure us in with, a you know, like a dangling carrot uh, manifesting as UFOs and something exciting and then which did happen with Ben, you know, he got in all excited and then it became wholly negative, just dominated by bad luck and ill health. So, you know, that, that's not necessarily directly connected to what the, question, the person asked the question asked, but it does sort of relate to the idea that we could be dealing with as Ray thinks, you know, negative entities that, you know, don't have our best interests at heart.
2: Well, here's another question from uh, one of our posters, Trained Observer. I think you, you knew Carla Turner, correct? You, you met her. He wants to know if you are aware of any men in black encounters uh, that she may have had, you know, that she did experience an untimely passing, uh, yeah. kind of in lines with our, our line of questioning here.
7: Yeah. No, I actually didn't um, know Carla Turner, but one of the people I interviewed for the book was Greg Bishop, a good friend of mine. And Greg knew Carla very well. And they interacted and chatted a lot and exchanged letters quite deeply on the uh, whole UFO abduction angle, alien abduction, which was Carla's big area. Greg told me something that was sort of deeply relative to the whole Men in Black mystery. And that was that on many occasions, you know, this was sort of pre-internet era, or for the most part, if we're talking sort of 93, 94, and he told me how him and Carla would exchange letters in the mail, and when the letters would arrive at his end and at her end, they were always open and tampered with uh, and being resealed, but in a fashion where it was obvious that whoever had done it had done it in such a way as to let both Greg and Carla know that their letters had been opened you know it wasn't done carefully it was almost done as if to say just to let you know we're in, watching in this. a
2: cavalier fashion <laughs>
7: yeah which what, which kind of there, it
2: dovetails into my, my Men in Black case the only one that I have other than my own personal um, mm-hmm. experience with having photographs maps and files taken from my office mm-hmm. by a, a team of uh, <laughs> dark clothed individuals uh, these guys were mm-hmm. wearing night vision though um Don't gloss over this, Chris, please. I'm not going to gloss over it. Just read my books. Uh, It's all there. Um, I had a case. A a woman claimed she was an abductee. Um, She was referred to me by the um, sheriff's department, um, by the dispatcher who was a friend. She said, "This, this lady needs someone to talk to. Please talk to her. And you know i don 't want to digress into the whole case, which is absolutely fascinating. My only real I think truly worthy abduction case that I investigated uh, from the San Luis Valley. but one of the interesting elements that she she mentioned was that her mail was being tampered with, which you know dovetails in with what you were saying about Greg and Carla. And she would be about, oh, I don't know, a couple, 300 yards from her mailbox down a long driveway, unobstructed. And she was having problems with her mail not arriving, people saying, you know, I sent you something, did you get it? And she would say no. Well, one day she was looking out her window and she saw a dark, old-fashioned car. Uh, She didn't really describe the model, the make, but she said it it was definitely an old car, but looked brand new. And she swore up and down I, I tried to get her to come up with a different term but she said the blues brothers were coming at, got out of this car and were rifling through her mail at her mailbox mm-hmm. and i said well what do you mean the blues brothers and she said they looked like jake and elwood they were dressed in in like pork pie hats they had thin skinny ties she was looking at them through a spotting scope um they were dressed all in in, in black suits they would rifle through her mail. She would run outside, get on her ATV, and start hot footing it down uh, to her mailbox.
1: And they would, you know, get into the car and take off. I'll tell you what, this is getting to be a cat and mouse game. We'll get into more of this in a moment. Chris O'Brien's the co host. Our guest is Nick Redfern. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the (laughs) Paracast.
12: Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: Nick, you said that laugh is not maniacal enough?
7: No, I said it wasn't maniacal. I just thought I'd change it up a little bit.
1: Oh, that was good. That works fine. You're in the Paracast with Gene and Chris and Nick Redfern. Chris is telling us a story about the blues brothers showing up at somebody's house
2: yeah she swore they looked just like Jake and Elwood one was tall one was short she ended up having to get a post office uh, box at a nearby town and she still had some mail problems but this brings up a very interesting point intimidation of witnesses uh you know rifling through mail are all these just standalone sort of synchronistic occurrences, or can you really determine some sort of pattern here, Nick?
11: Well, yeah,
7: I think there's a pattern in the sense that, you know, when we look into the history of the Men in Black mystery and we speak to, you know, witnesses far and wide, we do find repeated examples of certain things, you know, the intimidation, the male interference, weird noises on the telephone, things like this, you know, there are certain standards that appear... In, in most MIB cases, it's not like every case is different and random, which which is interesting and in some respects surprising, you know, that, that it is so so clear-cut when you look into it, you know, that we do find the, although it's filled with sub- subjects filled with absurdities, it's also filled with, you know, central aspects that, that don't seem to change.
2: Yeah, we have some other questions here from the forum. Um, I, I love this one. My question for Nick. This is from a Span Mex guy, who's been on the forum since January 2011. My question for Nick: How does one go about obtaining and perfecting a cool British accent? Thanks.
7: <laughs> well, I guess getting it in the first place, you know, just where you're born. That's you know, that's how it happens. But I, I think maintaining it. I mean, joking aside, I think. I've been in the U.S. 11 years. You know, I live in Texas. I live in Dallas. And, you know, my accent's not changed. And I think a lot of it is sort of dependent on what age. You know, if you move over when you're 5 or 10 years old, your accent's probably going to change, you know, within a, a year or two. Uh,
2: you still get accused of coming from New York.
7: <laughs> well, I can, you know, I often find it difficult to... You know, pick out, you know, different accents, but New York accents, I don't, you know, I can pick them out immediately. And you do have kind of that slight um, feeling of that as well. So.
2: Yeah, well, 12
1: years in the, the belly of the beast. Okay. You know, what's interesting from- here, I just want to mention about accents, why it is that so many British and Australian actors want to use... American accents Hugh Laurie house of course of course in the Batman movies Christian Bale and Gary Oldman And of course the guy who played Thor played Captain Kirk's father in Star Trek. He's Australian. Why do they do that?
7: Well, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, that they want to. I think, you know, it's
1: just... Yeah, they're paid not to. It's a job, of course. I'm kidding. Well,
7: yeah, I think they get offered a role in a film, and the character in the film is American. So it's, if you can do an American accent, you know, the the part's yours. If you can't, we'll find somebody else. I don't think it's a case of somebody wants to play an American accent any more than an American wants to play an English accent. You know, the part's available, the money's good, and you want the job. You do what
2: you've got to do, I guess. I just, I just love Rutger Hauer trying to be an American military <laughs> commander. That's, that's a classic. Uh, or Arnold. I mean, my God, we talk about accents. Okay, let's move on to another question. Here is a question from Boomerang, who uh, again is another late uh, arrival to the Paracast forums, but he asks a very interesting question. Which you know, I'm I'm interested to hear uh, your answer on this, Nick. Were there reports of MIB activity surrounding the Rendlesham incident?
7: Um, there are. There is, in one sense, I'll give you an example: the Rendlesham case, the incident in December 1980, when there was sort of multiple UFO activity in Rendlesham Forest, England, nearby the the twin air force bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge, and it's sort of gone down in history, I guess, as like a definitively. British Roswell in the terms of the fact that there are numerous military personnel involved clearly talking about extraordinary events having occurred. There are several things about Rendlesham that do sort of push it down an MIB path. One is the fact that on one occasion during the course of the three nights when the UFO encounters occurred, um, Colonel Charles Holt, who was one of the key players in the events and and witnesses to them, actually tape-recorded, audio-recorded, the movements and the voices of his personnel out in the woods. The an 18-minute version of this, or an 18-minute tape, I should say, has surfaced a number of years ago. You know, where you can listen to the guys saying, "Hey, what's that light? You know, what's that strange thing out there, etc." One of the first persons to get like a, a first or second-generation copy of this tape in England was the researcher and author Jenny Randalls, and she told a strange story about how she was contacted one day by a guy who said he worked for the BBC and they wanted to do a show, uh, but he would need access to this sort of first or second generation copy of the audio recording, which wasn't certainly at all in widespread circulation at the time. And she said she, she was reluctant to give him the copy, quite understandably, you know, sort of first or second generation. It was lucky to get something like that. Um, but she well, was, how
2: did he even know uh, about it?
7: Well, that, yeah, that's an interesting thing as well. But she gave um, this guy actually another copy of it. You know, she said, well, you you can have the the copy, but it was actually sort of a further generation copy. He was very pleased with that, vanished. And sometime later, Jenny contacted the BBC to say, find out when the show was airing and gave the guy's name. And there was no such show and no such guy working for the BBC. So had she given him this, the priceless sort of first or second generation copy... You know, it would have vanished into the night. But she gave him like a third or fourth generation, you know, was perhaps a good thing. So we have that aspect. There's also a story that in the immediate aftermath of the experience, there were people with British accents reportedly from the Ministry of Defence, wandering around the area, asking people, civilians even, if they'd seen anything unusual going on in the woods. So, you know, we have this issue as well, because the Ministry of Defence has always maintained it had a very low-key involvement and certainly never sent people out to question members of the public or anything like that in the area. So, you know, there are, there are b- these two aspects, at least, that do have sort of a, a tinge of the, of the men in black to them.
2: You no, know, but it it sounds like this is predominantly, I think, um, in one sense of the word, a North American sort of phenomenon. Uh, Nick Pope, for instance, uh, uh, from one Nick to another Nick, has Nick Pope uh, mentioned anything in his uh, you know presentations or books or whatever about yeah. a Men in Black phenomenon uh, associated with the MOD? How maybe MOD? Type uh, personnel could be construed as men in black type characters.
7: Yeah, I mean, one of the important things a lot of people don't realize about Nick Pope and his particular um, office—they assume you know this was like an X Files office. It wasn't. You know, by Nick's own admission, it'd be quite. Yeah,
2: he never went out on a single case. No,
7: no, he he never left the MOD main building. That's the official name of it—the main building.
1: It wasn't like Edward Rupel taking a bus to the case where a sighting occurred. Uh,
7: No, it it was literally a case of people sending reports into the MOD. They would reach Nick, and then he would share them with people like radar experts or satellite experts and see if they could come up with an explanation. But he never, you know, jumped on a train when somebody said a UFO had landed in their backyard or whatever. Nothing like that ever happened. Now, I interviewed Nick for the book about his views on the men in black, and he didn't deny that there's a men in black mystery. But what he said was he's sure that it's nothing to do with the Ministry of Defence, and he took the view that... Many of the so-called men in black, he believes, are so-called Walter Mitty-type characters—people in the UFO field who, you know, enjoy building a bit of mystique about themselves. Might dress in black, you know, go to conferences or visit witnesses, and perhaps, you know, make a uh, make a comment or appear just weird. You know, they turn up it, thinking like Micah sort of Hanks in
2: in Nashville. I, I love yeah, that story that, in your book.
7: Yeah. <laughs> but uh, And, and you know, I, I do think there's something to this because both Brad Steiger and Jim Mosley, who I interviewed, they both told me that they felt, although they both, you know, Brad particularly believes, you know, in the, the existence of a genuine MIB phenomenon of unknown origins, but he did concede, and as I point out in the book, he said that he felt that some MIB were actually sort of pimply-faced teenagers from the old NICAP group who had visited UFO witnesses flashed a card saying I'm from NYCAP in Washington, you know, which sort of might have scared the you know what out of some somebody in the middle of the countryside who knew nothing about UFOs other than the fact that they'd seen
0: something. They had and overinflated
1: like- egos as they say, we'll go into it more of yeah. the overinflated egos in a moment. I do not have an overinflated ego. I have no ego. I don't think I'm any good at anything. I'm going to give it up now. No, I'm not. Nick Redfern joins us. Chris O'Brien's the co host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast.
11: Oh.
12: Again, the Congressional Budget Office sounds the alarm. This time warns of Greek-style U.S. debt crises. You heard me right. The GAO is drawing a parallel between the U.S. economy, its debt, and the current Greek economic meltdown. With the debt-to-GDP chart climbing into unfamiliar territory, the growing budget deficit will rise to unsupportable levels. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. The Federal Debt and Risk of Financial Crises document the CBO has published is a must-read for every American, covering the risk of continued deficit spending coupled with an aging population and the rising interest rates spell economic disaster. It's imperative that you get a copy of this document and study it for yourself. Call me today at 800-686-2237, and I'll send you a free copy. Again, call 800-686-2237 and ask for your copy of the CBO document. Once again, you need to read this government report. Call 800-686-2237.
4: If you're
3: concerned about radiation poisoning from Japan in the air, water, or food and can't find potassium iodide, go to RestoreYourHealthNow.com and choose Liquid Zeolite. Liquid Zeolite is hands down the best product to remove radiation from your body and safely removes toxins, heavy metals, boosts energy levels, and promotes a strong immune system. For fatigue, muscle weakness, headaches, memory loss, influenza, joint pain, or toxic radiation poisoning, use Liquid Zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Liquid Zeolite is so powerful it was used to clean up contamination in Chernobyl, yet so gentle you won't even know you're taking it. Liquid Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee but is only available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of Liquid Zeolite at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. That's RestoreYourHealthNow.com or call 800 880 9976.
4: Call 800-880-9976 today and learn how to get free bottles of liquid zeolite. GCN listeners, why have you been hearing so much about Dermatol, the all-natural, all-purpose first-aid spray? Because it's the must-have first-aid product you need in your preparedness kit. Dermatol is made in America by Americans who know there's a more affordable, natural way to treat cuts, burns, bites, rashes, shingles, boils, and many other skin problems. Dermatol is gentle enough for diaper rash, powerful enough for bed sores, and harmless to the eyes and mouth. It's great for the whole family, even your family pets. Dermatol is antimicrobial, antifungal, anti viral and not diminished by freezing extreme heat or years in storage dermatol is an absolute must for any first aid or preparedness kit dermatol's soothing rapid restoration of injured skin is so effective it's guaranteed order yours today call 800-217-6677 800-217-6677 that's 800-217-6677 efficient economical effective spray it all with dermatol
6: America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network.
0: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com Get in on all the action at (laughs) forum.theparacast.com
2: The people at our network Why why do you do that, Nick? Hold on. Hold on a second, Gene. Why? Every time I go to the Paracast, Nick comes up with his cackle. What's up with that?
7: I guess I've just developed a cackle. (laughs) I've developed an OCD. It's called cackle. I don't know.
1: It's something it's, that you did, Chris. Kind of, something that you inspire in people. You I, make I your I'm, friends want to not to do it. I talk to personally. on the phone every day. You know, you and I talk regularly about different things, one thing or another. And I hang up the phone. My wife says, "Why did you start cackling?"
11: That's
7: my I've actually realized that my entire goal in life is to cackle on the paracast.
1: That's it. We don't pay for cackling either. But you know, someday the show is on a hundred stations, making big bucks will pay for the cackling. Nick Redfern's book is The Real Men in Black. Our co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. Wondering about the cackling, also about the pimply-faced teenagers. So do you think a certain portion of these men in black stories are young people who are possessed of overinflated egos? They go out there with their nightcap cards or whatever club they're members of, and they say, I'm from Washington, I'm from this, I'm from that. Or do they put on black uniforms just for the heck of it?
7: Well, it it could be a combination of all sorts of things like that. You know, as I said, I don't shy away from addressing the fact that I don't think there's just one category of MIB, and I don't think there's one phenomenon that has led to the legend of the MIB. And I think Brad Steiger and both Jim Mosley did make good points. Particularly in the 60s, you know, the, the UFO groups are far more prevalent than today. I mean, today a lot of research is done via the Internet. Back then, it really was field research and getting out and speaking to the people. And as both Brad and Jim rightly pointed out, there's probably no more field of the paranormal that's more jealous and ego-driven and wanting to be the the biggest person with the biggest case. And so they may well have said to the witnesses, as Jim and Brad said, you know, don't talk about this case if anybody else comes along. And if you flash in a card saying, I'm from NICAP in Washington, don't talk about this case— You can well understand how somebody out in the country, not really conversant with ufology, a year later sees something about the man in black, thinks, holy crap, you know, that's the guy who visited me. And they might want to sort of impress upon the person their professionalism. So instead of just turning up in a jeans and T-shirt, as I probably would, you know, they wear a black suit and, and tie, which just amplifies that idea even more. And I don't think it's a significant part of the phenomenon, but I do think it may well have played a role in certain cases that have sort of stood the test of time in terms of people still talking about them, you know, but I don't think it certainly can be written off just as that, but it may be a few significant cases do fall into that category.
2: Yeah, but this may be a very important sort of subset of information here. What we're looking at here, at least in my interpretation, is the birth of a modern myth, these inconsequential synchronistic events perhaps it's a pimply faced teenager showing up with makeup on and lipstick, I mean there's a couple of really hilarious <laughs> vignettes in your book about some of the appearances of these uh, characters but if somebody is going to investigate a case let's say and they want to you know, have some sort of proprietary over the case and they, they warn people off, don't talk to anybody else could we be seen? I wouldn't say innocent, but a almost a an accidental creation of a popular modern myth. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not you know I'm not saying all Men in Black cases are of this ilk, but I think this may be a very important aspect of this whole mystery and this phenomenon that misidentification of individuals with questionable motives in some sort of visitation-type encounter with a witness could inadvertently be fueling this whole sort of snowball that's being a very black snowball in, in this mm-hmm. sense that's rolling down the hill. Now, let's move it on. We're, we're kind of running out of time here, and I really want to get into some of the more, I think, creative and esoteric uh, theorizing around the men in black uh, mystery. Let's look at the actual accoutrements of these individuals. They seem to be always described as being dressed in a very generic kind of time period sort of sense. In other words, a lot of these cases feature out-of-date cars that look brand new, costumes and makeup that appear to be out of place and out of time for the particular event. Let's look at it, it, it a very intriguing theory that you have that the, we may be looking at some sort of time-based phenomenon here. That maybe we're dealing with something that is being projected back into our time frame with an approximation of the the costuming and accoutrements of the time and how they may be out of place. Uh, I think this is, at least in my personal estimation, this is the most exciting aspect of your book, analyzing this phenomenon. Let's start at… at, at at that basic point of, okay, let's factor out and leave aside all the, you know, possible mundane explanations. Let's really look towards the highest range here.
17: Yeah, sure.
7: Well, this theory predominantly came to me by a paranormal researcher named Joshua P. Warren, who lives in North Carolina in Asheville.
1: He was on the show just a few weeks ago, Nick.
7: All right, cool. Josh is sort of very, you know, open-minded, deeply investigative-based researcher and author. And, you know, he's come up with a lot of good, strong alternative theories for, you know, widely different phenomena, um, one of them being the men in black. Josh, you know, came up with the idea that, you know, could the men in black actually be time travellers? You point out quite correctly, everything about the men in black does seem out of time. The mode of dress, the hats particularly, the cars. It's almost as if, you know, they've, they've kind of screwed up 10 or 20 years out of date. You know, that wherever they appear, there's something slightly wrong. very often at least. Josh wondered if the MIB could be literal, almost like time cops was the way he kind of described it. The idea being that perhaps he looked at, for example, things like Mothman. He wondered if at some point in the Earth's future there are entities and creatures that travel back into our past and that manipulate the timelines for their benefits. Now, I know how this sounds. It sounds like something straight out of, you know, a fantastic, highly entertaining sci-fi movie. But the hypothesis Josh, Josh wondered about was, let's just say hypothetically, Mothman is some sort of future entity that's come back to our presence or the 1960s to manipulate the timelines to benefit itself in the future and that the MIB are essentially time cops who also come back to try and prevent any sort of paradoxes or fluxes in the time line from occurring and that's why when Mothman appears the MIB appear because they're actually trying to prevent any time-based disasters from happening.
1: So the question would be here are they coming here Mothman other creatures by accident or are they more intelligent than we believe they are?
7: Well Josh took the view that you know we're talking about highly sophisticated intelligent entities that are literally manipulating the past to help the future for their own benefit but he speculated maybe their benefit would actually recklessly alter timelines, which have to be corrected. And this got into some weird areas. We talked about the famous Thunderbird photograph, as it became known, which is perhaps not too well known in UFO circles, but certainly yeah, in quite a
1: really good, good point.
7: circles, it? Yeah, I mean the, the Thunderbird
1: photograph. I tell you, let's and talk just, about that photo in our next segment. We have Nick okay. Redfern. The book is called "The Real Men in Black," and Nick's recounting his conversations and research with Joshua Warren, who's been on the show before. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in the Paracast. <laughs>
15: We all need to prepare ourselves. You might have the food, water, gold, and silver, but ask yourself, are you truly prepared? That's why you need to visit MainMilitary.com. MainMilitary.com carries everything you need. Gas masks, wool blankets, fire starter kits, high-capacity magazines, chemical suits, military surplus items, and much more. Do you own a firearm? MainMilitary.com has a large selection of pistols and rifles suited for your needs. Are your local stores sold out of ammunition? Call or visit them today for prices on hard-to-find ammo and bulk ammo orders. You don't need to worry about having a military surplus store in your area because MainMilitary.com is the only store you'll ever need, all from the comfort of your computer. Visit them online today at MainMilitary.com. That's Maine, like the state, Military.com. Or call them at 1-877-608-0179. That's 1-877-608-0179.
11: If you drive for a living, you don't get paid to stop or wait in line. Keep your wheels moving with PrePass. Bypass way stations, fly-by port of entry facilities, stay moving at highway speed, while the guy without PrePass waits in line. Save time, save money. Call 888-401-PASS to try PrePass free. That's 888-401.
4: You've heard a lot lately about Zeolite, but what is it and why do you need it? Zeolite is a beautiful, complex, crystalline structure that encapsulates radiation and odors. Zeo King Zeolite naturally eliminates radiation poisoning your body may pick up from x-rays, security scanners, or nuclear fallout. Zeo King flushes environmental toxins absorbed from smoke, cell phones and chemicals so it detoxifies heavy metals including mercury lead and cadmium. Zeo King Zeolite helps boost your immune system allowing your body to balance itself and cut off food supply to cancer and parasites. Order your Zeo King Zeolite now from zeoking.com for only thirty nine ninety nine and receive a free month supply with every order. Call 888-402-6779 that's 888 888- Eight four zero two six seven seven nine or visit zeoking.com. That's zeoking.com for natural elimination of radiation poisoning.
6: Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN radio network.
7: This is Jacques. Vallée. You're listening to the podcast, The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: That is the best <laughs> laugh we've ever had. <laughs> In we're fact, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have the collected laughs. Yeah, yeah of you Mick got a Redford, sample that featured one. on an iTunes album. Just I Nick Redfern laughing. On that one, that
7: was a, that one, I tried to work hard on that
1: one. You missed your calling, dude. You should
2: have been a voiceover <laughs> artist for, like, uh, like horror movies or something. <laughs> well,
7: there's always time, I guess.
1: Yeah, you know, you're not that old yet. You have plenty of life left. The book is A Real Men in Black, and we're talking about out-of-time creatures. They come here through an anomaly or something. It sounds like a cross between the movie Time Cop where Jean-Claude Van Damme comes back into time to change what Ron Silver did to destroy the planet or kill his wife or something. And then we have the TV show, the British TV show from the BBC, where we see them having anomalies show up all over the place. What a well, man. in Fringe, too, in Fringe, uh, there's a real
2: strong MIB, The Watchers, yeah. uh, in the Fringe TV show. I think very intriguing. No,
7: you're right. One of the things that, as I said, Josh got into was this issue of what's become known as the Thunderbird photograph. Now, numerous people, primarily in the field of cryptozoology, report or remember seeing in the early 1960s in some of the magazines that existed at the time, like Saga and Argosy, what was reportedly an an old photograph from the late 1800s showing like a huge bird-like creature dead but pinned to barn doors somewhere in rural America. Literally dozens and dozens of researchers and famous authors have said, you know, we saw this photograph, we read the story, and yet today any attempt to find the magazine and the relevant photograph has just ended in complete failure. You know, it just cannot be found in any issue of any of the magazines. What's up
2: with that, Nick? What's up
7: with that? Well, Josh wondered. Well, Josh wondered. Granted, it's speculation, but he wondered if the picture really did appear, but there was some sort of worry over a time paradox concerned and in his scenario the men in black go back they confiscate the picture before it can appear in the magazine and so they create like a paradox where people in one timeline remember seeing it but then when the men in black have meddled with the timeline the picture and the relevant article never actually appeared but it didn't wipe out the presence in the sense that the people right in
2: the people's memories
7: Yeah, people today recall seeing it, but the past has been meddled with to a point where that's gone. You know, so that this is sort of like an interesting twist on the time paradox that if you change the past, it doesn't necessarily totally alter the present to the extent where people can remember things that occurred in the past. But when we go back and try and verify them, there's no evidence it
12: ever occurred. You know? So it's basically and the, and an
1: and imperfect things. process here. We can change some things. We can change maybe the actual event but if people experience that event, they still have it in their memory banks and they can just chalk it up to, well okay, I didn't remember it properly. That's all. Oh boy, this is, I tell you, this is grist for the Paracras Forum. Oh yeah, this starts <laughs> a thousand and one discussions.
7: I'm sure. <laughs> well yeah, I mean and again it's you know, it's an interesting theory. And I think when we when we look at things like the Thunderbird photograph and we look at the fact that the MIB, everything about them just took smacks of outdated history and mistaken you know the wrong clothes at the wrong time but josh did wonder and and i think this is actually a very good point he put forward he's like if you're a time cop or a time traveler and you have to you have to operate in 2011 or 1980 1960 1940 1920 what's the one mode of dress you could probably get away with wearing in all those periods (laughs) you know it would be the black suit. You know, you you can't turn up in 1920 wearing a Metallica T-shirt, you know, and combat boots in the same way that you're not going to turn up in 1985 wearing like a Confederate uniform or whatever. But you could conceivably turn up in the black suit in all those periods and move amongst people and get the job done without attracting too much attention, apart from the occasional person saying... Who the hell's that weird guy? Why's he got a fedora on? But otherwise, you know, they could pass unnoticed. And I think that's a very good point. You know, that, that the, the uniform, if you like, of the black suit does act as good camouflage whatever year within the last hundred years or so you wanted to pretty much travel amongst
2: well and that also brings into question uh... the whole idea of the make and model of the cars that they are consistently (laughs) reported driving i think in england what uh... their old jaguars uh... mostly in the united states they're either lincoln's or or most i think most often cadillacs but they seem to be brand new but of uh... you know decades old model
7: Yeah, that's exactly what you get. You know, that's sort of a paradox in itself. I mean, you often see old cars, you know, people who, devotees of old cars who like to restore them. But, I mean, that's a a different thing between seeing an old car that looks brand new. You know, that's sort of a real paradox. And when you find different countries, you know, having their own men in black with their own old black cars relevant to that particular country, you know, you have to think... What is going on? You know, is this really some sort of time-related issue? And maybe that would have something to do with the fact that they're not really accustomed with our ways. You know, if you're coming back centuries, kind of like us trying to talk to somebody in the 1500s and get away with it by Trump pretending to be someone from that era.
1: So basically they kind of misjudge the car they need to bring over.
7: So, yeah, something along those lines. And, of course, this is also... Yeah, this also depends on what the future's like. I mean, we're assuming in the future they've got full knowledge of the past. Well, let's say say there's been some disaster in the future and they only have fragmentary knowledge of the clothing and the customs and everything of the 20th century. And they're forced to, you know, go through a few old books that are left and maybe there's not much else for them to look at, you know, a few encyclopedias and try and gain an idea of how they should go back and how they should dress and how they should talk.
10: Yeah
2: and and, and remember listeners great. listeners hold on Nick is postulating you know potential theories here don't take this as gospel he doesn't believe this he's just presenting no, no, no. some some critical analysis here which which Nick I I totally you know I support and respect this particular analytical thread here but you know darn well that the skeptics are going to look at this line of reasoning and just go nuts we don't really have anything to back this up except for the, you know, circumstantial evidence that we have from, you know, the last five decades of, of, of you know, case histories. So how do you reconcile this? How do you talk about this particular theory or any sort of paranormal, and we haven't even talked about occult theories, but any sort of theory that flies in the face of a hard-boiled, you know, the bunker yeah. skeptic type.
17: Sure.
7: Well I mean what I always stress to people, you know, is that when I if I write a book and I address theories, you know, are the men in black aliens, government people, time travelers, occults? Is it a combination of several factors? I stress that what I'm presenting are theories because number one, it would be arrogant to presume we know what the men in black are. In the same way it's arrogant for somebody to, to say Bigfoot is a flesh and blood animal when we have not a single Case ever of Bigfoot ever being shot or killed—that's a
2: whole show so, right there, dude
7: Yeah, so I think you know it would be arrogance on the one hand, and it would also be incorrect for me to say, you know, that we've actually solved the Men in Black mystery. We haven't. What we have, I'm absolutely convinced, is evidenced, Excuse me, is evidence that there is a real Men in Black mystery. But because it's so elusive and weird, we're forced to look at scenarios and theories. But providing you tell the reader that you're presenting a theory and you're not trying to deceive them by passing it off as hard facts and evidence, I think that's, that's okay. You know, as long as the reader realizes that what I'm doing, and as I point out in the book, these are the theories of people who've looked deeply into the mystery, and this is what they've concluded as a possibility, not that they're like hammering on the pulpit saying, this is 100% fact, No, it's a theory to muse upon that might explain a genuine mystery.
1: Well, okay, and the other thing maybe we'll explore in our final segment, Nick, is which of these theories seem to be the most possible, maybe more than one, and how do we prove whether there are really men in black, psychic, physical, or otherwise, or do we want to know? Nick Redfern is the guest. The book is The Real Men in Black. Not the fake ones, not the movie ones with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, the real ones. The co host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> so here's what happened I was placing an order online I'm
6: Don from New Mexico. January of 2000, I had a heart attack. Then my real health began going downhill, and I had uh, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, poor vision, and I really wasn't sleeping well. I was a mess, pretty much.
4: Don reports dramatic improvements with heart and body extract.
6: I started taking uh, heart and body extract, and from within a few days, I started sleeping a lot better. My blood pressure uh, normalized, my blood sugar normalized, and uh, my sleep really did improve.
4: Experience these benefits and more when your body gets what it needs with the assistance of heart and body extract. Order at HBextract.com or call 866-295-5305. That's hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305.
6: Folks, I did not expect this at all. By the 7th, 8th, and ninth day, I saw dramatic improvements from taking heart and body extract.
4: Details at hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305 for heart and body extract. Crossbreedholsters.com. Two hundred and thirty-five years ago, our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence to escape tyranny and oppression. Today there is a need to reinforce that declaration. What can we do to protect our health as a nation and in our homes from those who wish to control the quality of our air and water? To find out, you need to visit airandaqua.com right now or call 612 767 2777. You will receive a free copy of our Constitution, a newsletter, and bonus items. Air and Aqua.com, purify your life today.
6: the GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts
11: here. This is Hilly Rose, and I hope that you do listen to the Paracast, because you will learn a great deal about the paranormal.
1: Mm, That starts sounding like a Renfield laugh. Remember the original Renfield and the original Dracula, 1931, played by Dwight Fry. He had this weird laugh when he was going to tell everybody how he eats insects and such. Gets gooey. Don't forget, if you have a comment or a question about the PowerCast, write us, news at the That's news at the We're talking to Nick Redfern. The subject is not gooey. It's the real men in black. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. This is our final segment. So we've voiced all sorts of theories. There are others to explore. We have questions we haven't even answered yet from our guests. But the long and short of it is, how do we go about validating any of these theories? Can it be done? Well,
7: you know, I think. The extent to which we can validate the theory is dependent upon the extent to which the theory is weird or not. You know, as I pointed out with the British case involving Anne Lehman, there's no doubt in my mind some of the MIB can be traced back to government people. And I actually think sometimes the government people, to cover their tracks, almost disguise themselves or literally disguise themselves as the weirder men in black because then they have a greater chance of not being found out. So I think the government angle is probably the easiest to demonstrate as having some validity to it. And I think the whole pimply teenager angle also has an aspect to it. But I think those are sort of minor aspects when it comes to the larger mystery of the weirder men in black. Now, I'll be the first to admit, how do you prove a tolper exists or how do you prove that, you know, there are time travellers covertly moving amongst us, you know, and manipulating things without our knowledge? The answer to that question is... It's incredibly difficult to do so, you know, and it may be near impossible to do so. You know, I'm a realist. I'm not going to tell people like some people will. Oh, the answer's coming. It's just around the corner. You know, I can't do that because I I cannot say that.
2: So there's no disclosure uh, movement that's trying to expose the true identity of the men in black.
7: Well, I'd like to be able to do that, but I'm honest enough to admit that I think it's so weird that we're still struggling for... We're not struggling for answers to the fact that there's definitely a weird mystery. We're struggling for answers to what lies at the heart of that mystery. And I'll be the first to admit that getting those answers, when we're dealing with definitively off-the-wall theories and outlandish theories and fringe science theories, it's incredibly hard to do so. I guess the real possibility, possible potential at least, would be, you know, to catch a man in black in action, so to speak, you know, but even when people like Keel were told, you know, the man in black's here right now, get here right now, get get over here, they would always arrive too late or, you know, the person had vanished. Um, Again, that's like a trickster angle, you know, with sort of dangling the apple in front of us and then when we go to take a bite from it, it's gone too soon. So I'm not entirely sure when we're dealing with something that is clearly nothing to do with the government and has more of an ethereal basis to it, how we actually get proof. It, it, it is extremely
2: difficult. Well, well, Nick, do you think that we're seeing a possible morphing of a men in black scenario into what is becoming increasingly more popular and that is the, the, the black-eyed children? This is an angle that you didn't address in your book and I'd like to uh, quickly get your thoughts on how you think the dark or black-eyed children may possibly be somehow associated with the men in black phenomenon.
7: Well, yeah, I mean, some people have addressed this, the idea, you know, the black-eyed kids or hybrid children and things like this, you know, the idea, could there be a connection? I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting about the man in black, if they're alien, if they're paranormal, whatever they are, they actually do look quite like us. You know, there are some subtle differences, colour of the skin, they look very skinny, pale, pasty, they sometimes have, as people have described them and and actually said, like thyroid eyes. Um, Well, Asian... so, well, an Asian as well but in some cases you know they, if they put the hats on and the turn up collars and the sunglasses they can pass amongst us without too much notice being given to them so you know when you talk about kind of human beings are slightly different like the black eyed kids or hybrids in alien abduction stories you know you have to wonder as some people speculated are the MIB actually some sort of hybrid are they part of some sort of hybrid mission is the end result the black-eyed kids, you know. I think these are all relevant areas that, you know, open up another avenue for MIB research. And, uh, and I think the important thing is, I think the human mind, you know, often wants to pigeonhole phenomena into one thing. You know, the Loch Ness monsters, a Plessis, or Bigfoots, a giant ape. It could be with the men in black, and I'm actually sure of this. There probably is far more than just one or two even category of men in black.
2: Yeah, so there's no one-size-fits-all type scenario.
7: No, I think if you asked me to put me on the spot, I would say there are government investigators who are men in black. There are also government investigators who disguise themselves as the weirder men in black. Then there are the weirder men in black. Then there's the pimply teenagers. Then there are the Walter Mitty's. You know, then there could be the occult ones. There could be time travelers. Maybe somebody's realized that the MIB motif is a very good one for a whole range of different operations.
2: It's an umbrella sort of uh, tag. What about the occult angle? We haven't really discussed that much. Uh, Quickly, why why don't you give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the occult theory?
7: Yeah. Well, a lot of people who've had MIB experiences afterwards in the immediate aftermath have had very weird runs of bad luck, ill health, even poltergeist activity in their homes. Poltergeist activity is actually a central part of a lot of Men in Black experiences. Albert Bender had it. Um, I talk about a number of people in the book who had those experiences, a lot of um, MIB witnesses who were users of Ouija boards. And, you know, you have to wonder, is there a connection? And people like Ray Boucher, who I interviewed for the book, you know, actually you know, said words to the effect of, yeah, you know, you start delving into Ouija boards and the occult, and you risk opening doorways to some of these negative entities. And Ray believes, you know, again, when you go looking for these things, they realize and they get their grips into you. And maybe they even manifest in a fashion, you know, that um, it, it sort of gets its grips into you even more. By that I mean that Ray believes that the really unknown aspects of the UFO phenomenon are literally demonic. And he feels that possibly this phenomena Cloaks itself in the motifs of ufology, like the men in black and the greys, as a means to entice us further into UFO research. When he actually believes what we're doing is opening ourselves more up to demons, and mm-hmm. that the ML- MIB are a sort of a manifestation of this demonic intelligence <laughs> that, that is used in the MIB imagery to pull us in because it's like exciting, intriguing imagery.
1: Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Well, John Keel, of course, tried to bring us more towards his feeling of a demonic aspect in his latter years.
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Keel's work is sort of steeped in the occult and demonstrating similarities between occult activity, you know, UFO activity. I mean, for example, you look at alien abductions. You know, somebody wakes up in the morning after an encounter with with an alien. You know, they have weird marks on their skin, etc., um, you know, they feel exhausted. You can find countless accounts in religious texts about people, you know, meeting demons, and the demon, you know, leaves its imprint on the person's body. They have strange activity in the house. There's not that much difference. You know, you can find a lot of similarities and crossovers. And I think Keel, whether people agree with him or not, was an important person because he demonstrated the the clear and undeniable Crossovers and parallels between things like UFO encounters, fairy encounters, goblins, trickster-like phenomena, where there's clearly some sort of underlying, in my view at least, underlying originating source, which is just pummeling us with different imagery, scenarios, creatures, beasts. Aliens, MIB, right, and, and,
2: and the whole the the whole tricksterish element. We we haven't even had time to discuss, which I I personally feel is really important in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And Nick, we're going to have to have you back. Uh, you know, you're one of our favorite people here at the Paracast. You're you're a guest co-host, and and I I think looking at the trickster element in this whole thing is almost worthy of a whole show in and of itself. And I want to thank you so much for all the work that you do. You're one of my favorite, uh, most, uh, you know, uh, I admire you, Rosemary Guiley, other people that publish, and really just you have four or five different websites that you, you're constantly adding material on. You're, I, I think, a bright light in this field. You are the guy, and, you know, any, anything that we can do to help
1: you, I'll tell you what, the book is called The Real Men in Black. Nick Redfern, where do we find more of your stuff?
7: Um, NickRedfern.com or NickRedfern'sbooks.blogspot.com.
1: Okay, and Chris has a site, OurStrangePlanet.com. Our Strange Planet currently being revised, revitalized, etc. From Chris and myself, special thank you to Nick Redfern. Thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast.
11: Thanks, guys.